that bass crashes in, you know it's time to begin. And wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to DLC. Especially if you're one of our geeks and sneaks using this podcast to power you through a workout or a run. We got you. We're going to be in your ear holes, helping you out, motivating you, pushing you through for 90 plus minutes with gaming goodness because DLC is your downloadable commentary for the week delivered the way we love it to be. And that is completely free. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Casper and Blue Apron. They're bringing the show to you. DLC, of course, the show all about games and there are many forms games played on desktops, laptops and consoles and also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I am your host, Jeff Canada. That's spelled with two N's and one T. And I am joined, as always, by my friend slash co-host slash nemesis. The guy who celebrated April Fool's Day by participating in a giant hoax to fool all the children in the world into believing a bunny leaves them eggs. Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian. Hello, everybody. That is 100% true. Whatever Jeff said is 100 I, I did that. I did that. I'm part of the problem. Uh, also, if you're listening with your kids, sorry about any potential awkward conversations you might need to have with them now. <laughs> I believe that uh, this is the best of all possible worlds. I believe that Easter defeated April Fool's Day because April Fool's Day, especially on the Internet, is always so annoying. And yet I feel like the fact that Easter happened on the same day this year, it, it just it. It undermined April Fool's Day, and we kind of got out of it alive. Well, chocolate, chocolate, and eggs far more delicious than pranks. I think that's what it comes <laughs> that is to absolutely the truth. Hey, we got a great show for you. I have a bonus content, a special tabletop time with Rob Davio, the designer of the new Fireball Island. We're talking about that. We got Far Cry Five to talk about. We got lots of stuff, and we have an awesome guest. That voice you just heard, ladies and gentlemen, you know that DLC is always your downloadable Kanata. And your downloadable Christian. But this week, DLC stands for Dots, Leaps, and Caprioles. Because we have the creator of Hop, Blip, and a Jump, as well as the host at Kinda Funny Games, Mr. Jared Petty, joins us. Hello, Jared. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I, I feel rather resplendent right now. And, and I didn't realize that I was sharing the show with the creator of the new Fireball Island, and I am now doubly excited because there is nothing on the planet Earth more bodacious than Fireball Island. Right? So I, I am – yes, I, I am worked up. I love that in- – wonderfully self-indulgent period of late 80s to late 90s giant board games. Torpedo Run, Fireball Island, that entire, and then the overly elaborate sets, like a mousetrap, and also the, 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 uh, the incredibly elaborate things like Battle Masters or, or Hero Quest and sure. just so many wonderful things made in that time. Fireball Island was always kind of the crown jewel uh, in, in that uh, in that tiara, and I can't wait to hear that interview. So that's really exciting. But I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, thank you for welcoming me. I, I uh, really appreciate y'all putting this together. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm thrilled to have you. We're big fans of you and your channel. It's just started up. Um, if you're not watching Hop, Blip, and a Jump, uh, you really should. It's a very different kind of way of talking about video games, and it's uh, it's wonderful. So uh, kudos to you, and thanks for being here. Well, thanks for the kind words. I, I try to make it different, and I try to make it different in worthwhile ways. Uh, it's kind of a part 
diary part documentary it's uh it's a there are plenty of thoughtful looks at video games but i do think that i i've caught a tone and a message that's uh that's not being engaged a lot in other places and i i think it's a worthwhile one i, I really uh i feel like the audience has helped make it better and better as we move forward with new episodes but the medium and the art form is still in its infancy, and I think we're just coming to a place where some of these kinds of reflections, we really have enough material now to begin to look back on what it meant, how it came together. It's not a history show by a long shot. It has really more to do with what's happening now than what happened before, but it's about how those things are connected. And uh, I think there's there's a lot there worth talking about, and in my own reasonably inept way, I'm trying to do that. So <laughs> I think it's it's better than inept, and uh, I hope people give it a shot. We're glad to have your voice here, and let's start the show the way we always do, with Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week, it's the Story of the Week. Story of the Week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happen in the world of video games this week. And you can always submit stories for our consideration by visiting our subreddit, which is 5x5dlc.reddit.com. Cool folks there. You should uh, swing by, check it out. You can talk about the show. You can talk about video games and just find really cool people to share the love of video games with. We've got a lot of uh, interesting stories this week, and Jared, you are our guest, so you get first pick of stories. What would you consider to be your story of the week? Well, of, of the ones we have on our list right now, I, I struggled hard with this because there's a couple here that are very near and dear to the heart. But in the end, I'm going to go to this one, which is No Man's Sky gets a big patch and is coming to Xbox One. And, uh, yeah, so Xbox One um, is going to get No Man's Sky. It's been patched again. The game, as we all remember, was considered by many a grease fire when it released. There was a great discongruency between its marketing and the vision that the team had and what actually reached the shelf. All of those seemed to be out of sync. A lot of people were very frustrated. I enjoyed the game when it came out. Uh, since then, they've worked extensively to patch it. But now it's getting... Another shot at life in an Xbox One version. And I think this is interesting because, like many games released now, a couple of years out, its its current iteration is vastly different than what first hit shelves. And we're looking at a product that probably was released before it was ready, now getting a sort of a restart on a different platform in a condition where it is much more like it was originally advertised to be. And whether or not that can that that can resonate with with a new audience and bring people back in or not that's a there haven't been that many instances in gaming where we faced a situation like this so i'm fascinated to see how this plays out yeah i agree um this is the, the conversation that i really wanted to have about this because it, it's an interesting position i mean i think that no man's sky really was synonymous with the sony platform for a long time it's interesting that it's coming to xbox one and that's a big deal but even bigger from my perspective is this next patch, with their, which they're calling the NEXT, uh, all capitals NEXT patch. And they, they claim will be the biggest patch yet for content into the game. And we don't know any details about what that content is going to be yet. But this idea that this is a living game that has changed vastly since it was first released, the big... Uh, gripe against the game was that there were certain promises that were perhaps made at, during the hype and build up to its release that weren't fulfilled and the game came out with not tons to do and it felt a little, little shallow perhaps, uh, a little empty and little by little more and more has come to the game. And, and the, the thing I'd like to, to discuss with you guys is this feeling that would it have been better for this game to just not have come out when it came out? Uh, and it's 
it's a balance right between the financial responsibilities of a company like Hello being able to not not being able to actually <laughs> work on a game without any kind of revenue coming in. So instead they put out this game and then we're able to continue working on it and build in more features that perhaps wouldn't have been possible if it was just baking this much longer. And then from a gamer's perspective too, I don't know if people would have been as patient as they needed to be for something like this to come out. Where where my mind goes first is that I, I don't have any inside knowledge on, on the situation, but it felt an awful lot like uh, a game that was released before it was finished, that just was not done. And that was probably announced and pushed forward at E3 and that, that, you know, that, that welcome to Jurassic Park presentation that it got, you know, hey, here's dinosaurs on a big orange planet. This is coming. And then at a time when PlayStation and Microsoft were still perceived as much closer to neck and neck, it was a high profile property and an exclusive that was going to come out and it was going to wow everybody and it was going to be a difference maker. And I think there may have just been way too much pressure for it to hit it on the shelf, either financial pressure or publisher pressure from the Sony marketing machine or the studio finding itself running short on cash. I'm not sure what happened there, and I don't pretend to know. But it obviously wasn't where it needed to be, and I think they knew that too. Uh, I don't see how they couldn't have looking at what hit shelves. Uh, you remember the harmonica video, right? The, oh, the, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, this this thing became a, a firestorm for for uh, for controversy and, and frustration, despite the fact that there was a lot that was really beautiful about it from the very beginning. But even simple balance issues. Uh, I mean, I remember playing this right right before the day one patch, and when you could you could travel across the cosmos without so many barriers uh, blocking your way, without so many things stopping you from going to the next sectors. And it was really frustrating when they did put the patch, and it's like, oh, I just just feel like I'm being kept away from what I want in this game, what I want to do in the first place. But you know, even little things like being able to take from off from a planet and not be shot down about once an hour that that should have been <laughs> caught in playtesting. Yeah, and it was obvious it wasn't. Uh, I don't know. What do y'all think? Christian, how about you? Uh, I know you have very strong feelings about this game. Um, you were just last week compared this to uh, to Sea of Thieves, which you have very strong feelings about as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious what this big patch next brings to the game. And I know that the game has added quite a bit since release, but I still, I personally am in a fool me once fool me twice mode with with the hype coming from hello games and you know wondering what is real and what is going to be delivered and what isn't this is going to be their largest patch is kind of all we know about it but i i I don't want to get too excited for something for a game that hasn't drawn me back in after being initially fairly let down by it um i feel it's curious that it's coming to xbox one I, i think it could have felt like a fresh start maybe before if this had happened 10 years ago when we weren't quite all as interconnected. Cause I, oh, now this game, you go to the store, you go to Babbage's or whatever it is, Funko Land, and you're like, oh, wow, look at this game looks neat. And you buy it for your Genesis and you didn't know what it was before. I guess it's 20 years ago now. Yeah, I was going to um, say 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you bring it home and you play it. But now I feel like. Uh, unfortunately, the game has a reputation, and I'm not sure if an Xbox-only owning audience is going to give it a chance, or even if the game is is vastly improved, I'm not sure if that audience is going to jump on board, especially with um, 
myself not being the only person that compared Sea of Thieves to No Man's Sky in terms of how it how it made me feel, um, I could see that audience saying, hey, we kind of just had an experience with the game that people said was like this other game. I didn't enjoy it that much. I'm not sure I want to jump in and play this other game again. Uh, we got an interesting email to dlcfeedback at gmail.com this week. Uh, this comes from Udit Singh. Um, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, he criticized us a little bit for making that comparison and basically said that the biggest difference between what Rare did with Sea of Thieves and what uh, Hello Games did with No Man's Sky is that Rare never made any promises that they didn't didn't fulfill. They never said there would be a bunch of features in the game that didn't end up shipping. Uh, whereas Hello Games, there's, I guess, a big Reddit thread of all the things that Sean Murray said in the buildup to the game that actually didn't make its release. And that it's kind of unfair of us to put them in the same category when that's a, a pretty big differentiator. Do you have any response to that, Christian? Uh, I, I don't know what, what that person had read or seen. I know interviews that I had watched and things I was told firsthand on show floors in terms of what was going to be added to the game or experiences um, that I was led to believe would be added to the game. And I, I feel like those weren't added and didn't happen. Um, even You're just talking about Sea of old, Thieves now. Yeah. Sea of Thieves, correctly, yeah. yes, Sea of Thieves. That it's going to be a swashbuckling adventure. I don't think it is that. So, I mean... You could kind of mince words. There's a lot of buckles, but very few (laughs) swashes is what you're saying. Very few swashes. Uh, I do think that um, Sean Murray perhaps even more so overpromised with things like multiplayer and and, and my interactions with um, people talking about Sea of Thieves. I guess maybe it was more broad paint strokes, uh, generalizations about the game. But I found that it, it didn't deliver in what I was expecting from the game based on things I had heard. Fair enough. Um, so I didn't mean to sidetrack us into a Sea of Thieves dis- discussion, but I thought that was an interesting email, and it, it's pertinent because of the No Man's Sky discussion. And I, I'm still rooting for this game. I, I don't know what it would take to get me to come back to it, but it, I'm still rooting for this game. I think the underlying tech in No Man's Sky is undoubtedly impressive and really, really cool, the level of ambition of, of building that kind of a procedurally generated universe. And if this next patch has a lot of cool things to do, then maybe I would come back. But I do feel like it's not so much a fool me once. It's more like you only get a, one chance to make a first impression. And while a bunch of early access games are proving that's not really the case and that you can sort of evolve <laughs> things over time, I don't think No Man's Sky's positioned itself that way. And, and so I... Maybe unfairly, but maybe maybe I, I'm not able to undo the fact that it made that impression on me at that time. Yeah, I, I can understand getting burnt, getting frustrated. Uh, I was I was fortunate when No Man's Sky came out in that it was kind of what I wanted. I wanted a big, quiet space Minecraft that was really pretty, and mm-hmm. it did deliver on a lot of that. And the features that they promised more or hinted more toward that were not as well implemented were the ones that were less important to me. So I'd actually spent a lot of time in the game at, at launch, but I sympathized with people who, who had expected a different experience and, and were, were surprised to find it not waiting there. I would say that in this case, where I, I do understand being angry at a brand, and I do understand being angry at people that, that you feel like have let you down, 
But I also think that in the world of fun, sometimes it's a good idea to look not at what was, but at what is. Uh, if what comes out for Xbox One and Xbox One X soon with 4K, HDR, and all the rest of that, and if what's comes out in the new patch for, for PlayStation turns out to be the kind of game you want to play, then regardless of, of that particular past, you may want to consider going out and grabbing it and having fun, because why deprive yourself of that? I, I don't think that I could ever... You know, go ahead. I was just saying, and, and the data evidently is in support of that, in, in the sense that um, Hello Games says that each update for No Man's Sky has been more successful than the last, and said uh, this is uh, especially true of our last update, Atlas Rises. So perhaps they are f- seeing an uptick in people that are adopting the game. Maybe we are the outliers. Christian, uh, what is your story of the week? Man. Okay. (laughs) I want, I I want to talk about uh, rocket riding and Fortnite is incredible. I really love Fortnite. I'm having a lot of fun playing Fortnite. I don't want to spend a lot of time with it, but if you haven't seen clips, go see clips. What I want to talk about this week is, and it kind of leads into what this week's at least 20 more minutes is. Um, and that, that specifically is about buying tech at potentially end of, end of its lifespan. Um, and so the story that I'm tying that to for this discussion is PlayStation VR's price cut. Cause we'll be talking about a VR game that I am absolutely in love with, um, later in the show. And so I was looking at, you know, PlayStation VR's library. And even if it is replaced, let's say at E3, which I, I don't know any information. I'm not saying it is or it's going to be. Um, there's an incredible library of games on, on PlayStation VR that you can get into for a very reasonable price point now that makes it a pretty compelling piece of hardware. But when I was talking about it on Twitter, people were bouncing back and saying, yeah, but at this point, I just want to wait for the revision. At this point, surely something better is coming. At this point, blah, 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 blah. All of that being said, the, the news is Sony officially cut the price of the PlayStation VR by $100. You could unofficially get it for $100 less fairly often as they were running frequent sales. But now the price on all of the bundles have has come down by a hundred bucks. And man, Jeff, as VR's number one fan, that has to be super appealing, right? Like th- this this is this is the cheapest it's ever been, and there's a lot of good games for it. Yes, absolutely. Um, $299 right now gets you uh, the whole shebang. A PSVR headset, PlayStation camera, Demo Disc 2.0, and the VFR version of Doom. That's pretty cool. Um, also, the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim VR bundle has dropped down to $349. So, yeah, VR is more affordable if you're trying to get into VR, entry-level VR, if you've got a PlayStation, or even better, if you've got a PlayStation 4 Pro, this is the best time to jump in. As you said, you, the, the, the library is there. The, the experiences are plentiful and really high quality. The price is reasonable. I mean, it's still not cheap, obviously, but it's the cheapest it's ever been, and that's not too shabby, I would say. And... Um, you know, it's unfortunate, I think, that the move controllers are still as janky as they are. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, hope, I'm hoping that is fixed. I'm hoping that – and that's one of the reasons that it would lead me to go down this road that you have gone down, Christian, of being worried about, you know, recommending people buy it full voice because you 
never know if you're like, yes, buy it. And the day, next day it's like, oh, the better version is here, but the better version is not <laughs> going to be at this price, right? It's going to be much more expensive. So maybe that's a solace in that experience as well. But I do hope that they at least update a new input device for, for uh, VR. But I, yeah, I completely agree that uh, anybody that thinks that this is still sort of uh, gestating is is wrong. It, it, it's it's here. It's great. There are amazing experiences that are very affordable, and the the kit itself is pretty good. Are you are you a, a VR believer, Jared? Are you still? Uh, oh, I, I'm absolutely a VR believer. I, I think that you um, summarized a lot of the issue in something you just said. To paraphrase you, if I get the quote right, uh, it's not cheap, but it's cheaper than it's ever been. Right. Uh, I think that you, you hit the nail on the head. I am of the opinion that a very large number of people are fascinated by VR, or at least curious about it. And they're curious until they put it on, and then they're fascinated because experience tends to be extraordinarily compelling. Uh, whether it be with Five or uh, PSVR or Oculus, once you've done it and experienced it, you understand what the hype's all about because you're like, oh, okay, this is a game changer the world is going to be different at some point in the near future, and this is the the first test case of that in action. Yeah. The library, as you said, is there now. The tech is there enough to make it worth owning at the moment. Fortunately, $350 uh, or $300, those are still a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, it, it is probably a little above that magic price point where people are willing to dish it out for a peripheral. So this will bring new people in, and I think the price will continue to lower uh, uh, throughout the lifespan of PSVR. But I almost feel like this is a the current-gen proving ground of a next-generation product that's going to change our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think PSVR is worth your time uh, and your money. But I also think that it is a warm-up for a world-changing tomorrow. I'm a believer that virtual reality technology is uh, is going to fundamentally alter the way that we play games and also the way that we communicate. I spent some time with Microsoft's HoloLens uh, wandering around with one, and that combination of augmented reality and virtual reality knocked my socks off. The things that that sucker could do with AR. I'd conquer running around my living room and climbing up my furniture, and, and he knew where everything was with ridiculous precision. And I was just like, okay, this is a little too weird and a little too wonderful, and I love it. <laughs> PSVR has brought me into experiences that, that make me go, and particularly the, the creative ways it's been used in third-person games. I, I'm of the opinion that while the first-person experiences are interesting, it's the new ways that people are using third-person experiences that have really impressed me, and people keep finding new ways to do that uh, with, with extraordinary storytelling. You think about things like Moss, for example. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm a believer. This is good news. The world is not all going to run out and buy PSVR tomorrow, but Every step they get to making this cheaper, more miniaturized, more refined is great. And if you have the money laying around, uh, it's it's worth the wonder factor. It, it's worth it just to have your friends over and have them try it on. <laughs> yeah. go, wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's, what do you guys uh, think? That's definitely uh, 90% of the fun I have is just sh- being a Sherpa for other people through the VR world. Uh, my, What I suspect is happening a little bit perhaps, and maybe this is – me just connecting two dots that don't need to be connected. But I wonder how much of this is them going, eh, ready player ones in theaters. 
I wonder if people want to get into <laughs> VR. You know, it's like, oh, let's lower the price a little bit and maybe somebody will come out of that theater all buzzing about the possibility of VR and swing by the Best Buy on the way home or whatever. Dad, I want to get VR yeah. in a car, make it a van with a treadmill and gloves. <laughs> and Dad! <laughs> yeah, and Dad, can you explain all the references in that movie? Yeah. Dad, why is it in the future, but... It's all things that were around when you were a kid. Dad! <laughs> Dad, why is there no characterization and why does the love story make no sense? Dad! Oh, wait, sorry. That's how life works, son. <laughs> Shut up and listen to Journey. Oh, man. Yeah, that's just my personal bitterness about Ready Player One. Uh, I'm right there with you, man. I'm right there with you. Um, my story of the week this week, uh, I'm so glad nobody else picked it because I am uh, I'm so abuzz about this. Red Faction Gorilla. <laughs> what, uh, this is a game that I have talked about over and over and over again in, in over the many years since it came out. For some reason, well, I know the reason. The reason was it came out the same time that <laughs> GTA 4 came out, like the same yeah. like week or something. And uh, it, it is, I think, a underappreciated absolute gem of a game. I loved Red Faction Guerrilla when it was released. It's all, when everybody's like, oh, what's a, a, a you know diamond in the rough or you know, a game you think more people should play that they oftentimes over the years, I have said Refaction Gorilla. I just think it is too few people understood it or not understood, it, but know about it. Too few people played it. Too few people love it. And it's getting remastered even better. It's getting remastered uh, because evidently THQ Nordic loves their remaster puns. Um, they did the definitive edition of, of Darksiders and now they're doing the remaster of Red Faction Gorilla because it takes place on Mars. Red Faction Gorilla is a game that originally came out on uh, Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. It was a big open world action, third person action game where you could literally destroy everything. They built the world out of this Geomod 2.0 technology. The first Red Faction was this, this game that introduced what they called Geomod where you could like shoot into the ground, and then the ground would deform around you, which was really cool at the time. They just blew that whole thing out for Red Faction Guerrilla, where every building, every structure, every vehicle was built out of these, like, component Lego parts, almost. And like you... Fortnite? No. Not like Fortnite. No, that, no that's, it's, it's more like, more like <laughs> everything's just built out of geometric shards waiting to shatter. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, like <laughs> more like Lego or 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 a Lincoln Logs or some some thing yeah. that's just like built out of uh you know um uh popsicle sticks and then you smash it and all the popsicle sticks go flying in every direction. It is so satisfying, it's so fun. You could take down uh, things from any angle. You could it just was this crazy fun sandbox game that came out when the world's most popular sandbox game, Grand Theft Auto, came out, and so nobody played it. But now it's getting a remaster on uh, PlayStation 4, Windows PC, and Xbox One. And I am so excited for this, so happy that more people might know about this game. And hopefully, if we take the Darksiders remaster to Darksiders 3 announcement as precedent, maybe this leads to a new guerrilla-style Red Faction game announced from THQ Nordic. I certainly hope so. Yeah, I care a lot about Red Faction Guerrilla. I, I said earlier that I wanted to, I almost chose something else instead of the uh, No Man's Sky story, and this was the something else. I adore 
this game. And I adore it for a lot of reasons. Uh, most of all, I think, because it is fundamentally about taking a big hammer and smashing stuff and becoming Thor of Mars. Uh, <laughs> and, and there's not enough... I, I like games that allow you to be kind of sloppy and make your own fun, and this one's really good at that. It, it's very different. It, ostensibly, it's kind of an action, sneaky, stealthy, blow things up with a gun game, but really it's at its best when you're like, how many dudes can I trap under that archway with a hammer and take out at once? And I found myself a lot of the time just switching it down to easy mode. Yeah. Which I which I don't do that often because not to lower the challenge, but just to give me the freedom to just be like, How much can I rack Hulk Smash? And yeah. just kinda go in there like the world's greatest, you know, minecart level, driving forward and hoping I slam into something. And I would switch back and forth between those two modes, kind of between medium and just like, okay, I'm playing the game like you want me to and uh back to easy where I was like, Yeah, I can plow through stuff with reckless abandon. Red Faction is, in that regard, a uh, it's like a very video gamey video game. Yeah. It's a, that kind of experience that, that you, uh, almost the stereotypical, yes, I'm running around doing violence. And <laughs> sometimes that's fun. Yeah, it definitely scratches that same itch uh, that you get when you, you know, there's a there's a really intricately made sandcastle on the beach and you just run over and step on it and kick it and there's just some some gleeful wild id that's released um, for Jeff, just you monster. I know. I'm too, it's uh, you know, it's I let's say I built the sandcastle first, but uh not you know, not some 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 kind children that I'm destroying their lives of. Um Anyway, yeah, it's a it's a delightful game. I'm excited for the remaster or remaster uh, even more. Uh, Christian, did you ever play this one? I did, and uh, W. Matthew is, is pointing out in the chat and wants me to say that for uh, if you own the PC version, you get the remaster version for free. Apparently, how cool um, is that? I've not looked that up, but uh, that's pretty great. I loved the game, and I I, I remember too. Um, the the story was like just enough, you know. It was like political, and then it was just like, but just go beat some stuff up, and you're like, don't mind if I do. Yeah. And you talk to people. <laughs> I think what sour some people on it, and I forget the name of it, but like that that next one where it was like crabs, like oh uh, yeah, they decided that people for some reason didn't want uh guerrilla yeah. style, so they were like, oh no no no, what they want is a more traditional third person shooter, and uh, what was that called? I, yeah, I forget. Yeah. But just don't don't if you think of it, if if you think of the series and that's what comes to mind, just know that that's not what this game is. This game yeah. is you're running around on Mars, attacking things whenever you want to. You have fun emergent gameplay moments. I imagine as Jared pointed out, uh I think earlier that the AI isn't always the smartest. I imagine now, you know, 10 years, 5 years later, whatever it's been since it first came out, the AI seems even less smart. But that can be a total joy in this game as it was back then where they kind of – they go on their p- patrol, then they stand a place, and you're like, ah, oh, I wish that person was just one foot closer to that building. And then you like make a noise <laughs> yeah. over there, and they move that one foot, and you're just like, oh, you idiot. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and there's, there's something about it that it's not, it's not the same kind of game as Crackdown, and it's not as good as Crackdown. Right. But there's something of the spirit of Crackdown in it. Even though it's not as open world oriented, it's more mission oriented, it's got that same like, we're going to play a game glee <laughs> yeah. to it. That's uh, such a good way like of saying that. it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> we're going to play a game glee. I love that. Very, very well said. Um, all right, guys, let's move on and talk about the games we are playing. But first, I want to thank our first sponsor, which is Casper. Casper is a sleep brand. That makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. Oh, man. If you are sleeping on 
a mattress that you've had for many years, chances are you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> that happened to me. Uh, man, I had the same mattress that I went through college with for, for so many years. I didn't realize that there was a difference that there was something else out there that I would wake up and be sore and have like neck problems and stuff. And I didn't put two and two together that it was the mattress that I was sleeping on that needed to be thrown in the garbage. But thankfully got myself a Casper. It was delivered right to my house. So easy. You don't have to worry about going into a store or waiting for president's day weekend, (laughs) roll around to go into the big mattress sale. They have low prices year round. They cut out the middleman. They cut out the big, store that you have to walk into with the high pressure salesperson breathing down your neck. And they cut out the fact that you have to make a decision immediately by just laying down on a mattress for a few minutes. Casper gives you 100 nights of risk-free sleep to try out the mattress. You can send back the mattress at any point in that 100 nights if you decide that you don't want to go with it. But that's how much they, you know, they, they believe in their product. They're going to give you 100 nights to make up your mind to make sure this is what you want. And these are really high quality mattresses. They combine multiple supportive memory foams for quality sleep surface with just the right amount of sink and bounce. Uh, they've got over 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google. Casper is becoming the nation's internet favorite. Nation's internet favorite. Mattress favorite is what I wanted to say. Uh, and They've got a variable variable mattresses for you to choose from. You can choose uh, other products too. They have they have um, um, lots of things more than just mattresses. They have a whole line of products to improve your sleep. Pillows, sheets, it's great. We are going to help you out just because you listen to this show. We're going to give you fifty dollars towards select mattresses by visiting. Casper.com slash DLC. That's C-A-S-P-E-R.com slash DLC. Using our promo code DLC when you check out, you will get $50 off select mattresses. Terms and conditions apply. So give it a shot. Improve your sleep. Sleep better. It's sleep, man. Oh, I love sleep. Casper.com slash DLC and that promo code DLC. Time to talk about the games we have been playing. I actually want to start, Jared, I know you have a a list of games we will get to. I want to talk about them. But I think I want to start this week with Far Cry 5 because it's sort of the big release this week. A lot of people are talking about it. Both Christian and I have been playing it. Uh, And I, I I didn't want to, you know, bury the lead here because Far Cry 5, big, bombastic, new Ubisoft game. Uh, Christian, what are your thoughts on Far Cry 5? I talked a little bit about it last week, but I had just sort of scratched the surface at that point. Uh, you've been playing it this week. What do you think of Far Cry 5? Yeah, I'm maybe six, seven hours in. Uh, dabbled just maybe like an hour into arcade mode. I am really, really, really enjoying the game. It does what Far Cry has done so well since 3 in creating these incredible emergent gameplay moments. I think the environment is beautiful and stunning. And the way Ubisoft is able to make these maps that I can get into a helicopter or a plane and take off and see the whole map and fly somewhere and land and be there and no load time and minimal pop in. It's, it's absolutely stunning. Um, I don't know how the story unfolds. Um, but I have found that, um, 
just did like the six, seven hours that I've played, the story is disappointing. It starts really strong, in my opinion. The first maybe 10, 15 minutes of gameplay is actually very limited gameplay. And it sets up what I think could be a very powerful story or message. And then the game from there, like almost immediately after that, it was like, wasn't that powerful? Okay, now when you're leaving, here's here's things you can do. You got to do this gameplay. You got to do this gameplay. You got to do this game mechanic. And it like very quickly breaks from this idea of having a narrative and, and not just being a video game, but it tries to thread that needle with like still have, I, I found that it, I felt that it had, it, it tried to thread the needle between like this weighted serious story. And then also being like, but it's still a far cry game. So go blow crap up uh presentation. And so I feel like that's kind of where the game is faltering for me is on that, trying to walk that line, but the emergent gameplay, which after I hear your continued thoughts, Jeff, I would like to share two incredible emergent moments that I had, but I'm curious uh, how, how the game's treating you having spent more hours with it. Yeah, I really like it as well. Um, I, I, it's just really fun. And the setting is, and story uh, have a, a weight and a, um, an emphasis on my, on my psyche that, uh, you can't ignore, right? It, it is a inherently political idea talking about a religious cult talking, especially in the context of where we are in the United States right now in the year 2018, you can't disregard that, but I kind of do <laughs> because, which is weird for me to say as somebody that, that believes so strongly about this stuff, um, because like you said, Christian, it sets up this context and then Quickly, you're just in a fun game. And if I allow myself to just be playing a video game, it is such a well-constructed, fun experience. It, it does so many things right in creating a big open-world experience that's impressive visually, that is got lots of very different kinds of things to do, and only briefly touches upon i mean every so often it touches upon this story which i don't have necessarily a big problem with it is not as i think doesn't have the backbone that maybe it could that i think would be make it better and honestly if you would talk to me three weeks ago and said is that even possible to make a video game and talk about real stuff like this you know make a really action-packed shootery type game and talk about stuff like this, I probably would have gone, I'm not even sure it is possible. Because I feel like it would it'd be inherently disparate and and contradictory, right? These two modes. And then two weeks ago, I played the first two hours of God of War and I went, oh, somebody figured out how to do it. <laughs> somebody figured out how to make an action game that also is coherent and, you know, uh, has something to say and doesn't... Also it, Wolfenstein 2. Wolfenstein 2, I think... Uh, I think less successful, but, but yes, definitely I would put it in the win column, uh, alongside you. Um, but I, I don't know why I can't put my finger on why I don't ding Far Cry 5 harder for this. I think it's because I like the feeling of the setting. It feels like a, a place I'm in. Um, I like the, the look and feel of the setting, uh, and ultimately I'm playing this action game that is really well constructed. Now I have some big qualms that have percolated in the last week of playing the game a lot more. I think it's criminal, criminal that this game doesn't have a save anywhere feature. 
that I can't walk two steps, save, walk two steps, save like I can in Skyrim or uh, even Wolfenstein had that for God's sakes. Um, that should be in this kind of game. This kind of game where you're, it's, it is a big sandbox. It is has a bunch of emergent things that go on. I would love to be able to experiment with things and try wacky stuff and not feel like I have to go back to a checkpoint and not really sure where the checkpoint is or what stasis the world will be in at that point where I'm reverted to the checkpoint. All of that stuff I find very frustrating and just incongruent with this kind of game. Learn, understand, I think, that you are making a big open world role-playing game like Skyrim. That's the game you're making. You're not making a checkpoint to checkpoint Call of Duty. That's not the game you're making. So don't try to do a checkpoint to checkpoint game. Just give us the option to save anywhere and have fun. That's a big point for me. But also, I know it's a Far Cry thing. I know, I understand it's a Far Cry thing to never leave the first person perspective. I get it. I understand that that's the thing. But I do not want to drive vehicles in first person. I don't. (laughs) I don't. It makes it much more difficult, much less fun. Just give me the option. Just put an option in to pop out to third person when I get into a car or a even worse, a, a plane or a, a helicopter. The, there, I don't know if, Christian, if you've gotten to any of these. Um, there's a fictional character in the game that I can't remember the name of them, but it's basically a riff on Chuck Norris. It's like Charles Nixon or something like that. Coyote Nixon, I think it might be, something like that. Uh, but there are these challenges that you find where you have to be uh, basically uh, the world's greatest stuntman and drive a car through flames and crazy stuff like that. And I find them so frustrating because you, you have to stay in the first-person view when you're driving these cars. And I would be so much better at it if it just let me do that. So that those are my biggest qualms with the game. But overall, I really like it a lot. I have a, a tonal question for both of you uh, before you move on to more mechanics, if you don't mind, because this really does intrigue me, some of what you were saying earlier about – saying that you wonder why you're being more forgiving of it. I, when it comes to, you consider an experience like Bioshock Infinite, where you have this fascinating story that sometimes felt very dissonant with the violence mm-hmm. that was going on as part of the gameplay. And I think a lot about what makes that work or not work in different games. So I think about GTA, for example, where they manage to create these very realistic worlds, but they make it parody. Everything is an exaggerated version of mm-hmm. something. Everything's a joke. And by making everything a joke, they allow you to do these ridiculous things in this very realistic world and it all still feels okay. And that's one part of the genius of that series. When it comes to this game, which is has been marketed to us as a story of theocratic nationalism uh, and a, 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 a commentary on the power of cultism and isolation – and the violence and ignorance and and wickedness that can grow out of that. Uh, do you ever find yourself taken out of it by the challenges of trying to deliver a sandbox game that's in line with that kind of serious storytelling, or has it worked really well for you? What, what, I don't what think, do you think. I don't think it's either of those, honestly. And I think if it if it really was trying to do what you said so eloquently, I think it would its failure to do that would be more egregious and I probably would, would lead to me having a uh, uh, more negative feeling about the game, but it, it kind of isn't even trying to do that. It is, it is trying to be social commentary like the saw movies are trying to be social commentary, you know, IE not at all. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> it is trying to create a context for a video game that feels thrilling. It, it is using the, I think I don't honestly, I, I hesitate to be a, you know, try to be a psychologist in the mind of the game designers. Cause I will almost invariably fail, but it doesn't feel like any of the designers went, let's really have something to say about the state of the world and, you know, a religious nationalism. Let's, let's really say something. I think they went, what is a crazy setting we could come up with and create these really over the top B movie characters and create this thrilling adventure. I, I think it is trying to be a, you know, a Bloomhouse uh, thriller and it, it, it's not trying to be get out. You know what I mean? So question, so question one for them was not how do we comment on the state of theocratic nationalism? It was how do we make a world where killer turkeys make sense? I, I think that may be, yes, more true. Uh, I think Which that, that is, is great. I, I'm all about fighting turkeys and bears. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. a but, uh, Yeah, and I think that the, I, I, again, I hesitate to uh, assign motivation, but I, I think that the motivation may have been, let's just create these wild characters and make something that feels thrilling and that puts you in a state of fear and excitement that we want our video game to elicit. Not because it scratches at something real in, in America, but because it scratches at a more universal, just scary thing. But maybe, Christian, maybe you have a different interpretation. I don't know. I, I, I do feel like when they were advertising this game and as they presented it, they presented it with having a little bit more political weight or having a little bit more of a, a stance or a say. I, I think the intro of the game also illustrates that, that it's trying to say something and deliver a message. And I think some of the pre-recorded or the messages you hear on the radio or stuff from the father and certain characters try to reinforce that. Um, for me personally, Jared, to your, to your point, I think part of the reason that I don't, um, let the bad narrative or the jumbled narrative and the narrative problems of the game pull down my enjoyment is that for years now with these big Ubisoft games, I've kind of just gotten used to letting that part of the game go. And that's not why I'm coming into it. That, that being said, if I were forced to review this game on a critical scale, you know, I wouldn't hold it up as a 10 out of 10. I would certainly ding that aspect of the game, but um, I really enjoyed Ghost Recon Wildlands. And it's the same thing where that game is just over the top with things. And what I feel is a self-seriousness in this game too, where it's trying to tell this story, or at least I think it is, um, or even just have uh, a coherent thread. The narrative things that happen come out of left field. The characters that are with you, I find them to be grating and just constantly offensive, dropping expletive after expletive for no apparent reason. And it's like, uh, all right, I assign you to go over there to take out that person. All right, I'm going bleeping right. And when I get there, I'm going to bleep and kill him and bleep down his throat and then bleep him and then bleep him and then bleep him. And then we're going to bleep him. And then we're going to, I'm just like, oh my uh, mute? Can I mute AI party chat? Like, <laughs> but the emergent moments, the gameplay, the reason I go to these games, uh, Wildlands, Far Cry 3, Far Cry 4, were these fun gameplay moments like we talked about um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Gorilla. Um, it was the idea of just setting up these really fun, intricate explosion moments or trying to be stealthy and do these really 
awesome things where one of the things I've done in Far Cry 5 is I, I was taking a helicopter to a location just because it was farther than I wanted to walk and I was near a helipad. And it just so happened that when I got to that mission, uh, the way that mission goes out, it happens is that you get there and then the people start escaping and they're escaping on an ATV. And had I rolled up on foot to that mission, I would have had to jack a car, get on an ATV, go on this cumbersome chase. Instead, I fly in on a helicopter. It triggers the escape. My radio's partners like expletive expletive after you got through all the expletives they said they're escaping on an atv go catch them and i was like well this is perfect and i just literally dropped my helicopter right down on them a fire of blood rained out and then like the game kind of paused for a second it felt like half a second they're like oh you did it (laughs) like congratulations (laughs) and i love that the, the kind of emergent storytelling moments that make sandbox games worth playing are those like this is what happened to me i think i a long time ago i heard Chris Kohler talked about this once in a podcast. That's why we play them, because we want to tell stories. And these kind of anecdotes are why I love these things. You said you had a couple. What else you got? I, I can't wait to hear them. Well, see, I told Jeff this one already, but I was playing. There's another – I don't know if it's a side mission or main mission, but I came across this part of the road that was – there was a blockade, and you couldn't get through. Or I could have gone around, but it was like, yo, take out the blockade, and we got to do this, that, whatever. And I was trying to be stealthy and I'm climbing up over and around this mountain and, you know, trying to get into an angle to snipe some people or do whatever. And then someone sees me. Also, this game, I think, has odd enemy detection where I feel like the guy is looking to the right and then it's like, and they see me, whatever. Again, I I give it a pass. I give it a pass, but it is an issue. And I get noticed and somehow and I run deeper into the forest on this mountain. And then I'm at a part of the, the game of the world where enemies come in on helicopter and this helicopter comes in like gunning me down, chasing me. And I'm just like, oh crap, here comes this helicopter. I'm gonna, it's gonna be the worst. And so I hide behind a tree for a second, take out my compound bow, switch over, and this helicopter is up and away in the sky. So I adjust my aim to take into account, you know, uh, arrow drop or whatever. And I launch this arrow at the helicopter and I watch it fly, you know, hundreds of feet through the air smash through the front window of the helicopter, go right into the head of the pilot. The pilot staggers and falls out of the helicopter, and I watch their body just drop, you know, whatever it was, the mile to the ground. The helicopter then wobbles and then banks left and careens down right to the base where I had to kill all the people, lands, hits like two red barrels, blows up, and the same thing, the checkpoint triggers, and it's like, you did it! And it was... You just... Just incredible. You had Rambo 3's ending happen in real life. That's amazing. Yeah. You killed a helicopter with a bow and arrow and ended your mission. That's beautiful. It was amazing. Of course, that whole time my AI assistant was swearing at me and enemy detection was spotty and the story was trying to tell me that, you know, religion is this, is bad, or brainwashing well, but is bad, you're, or now you're, also sorry. enemies are hyped up on weird mythical drugs. You're, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're trying to balance out what you just said about all the fun with the negatives but i find as i'm playing it most often i'm bumping it up against the fun mechanics and only periodically bumping up against the clunky storytelling and even the clunky storytelling it's like b-movie fun i i I don't think it's as bad as all that it's fine and i I think i I think it's worse than that and i I think there are gameplay (laughs) problems with the narrative of regarding you'll be doing something and then it will trigger so I don't want to spoil anything. Then it'll trigger something in the story. And there's like a jumps that happen that are odd. And I think if you, to me, I think if you take the story seriously, there's, there's B movie, like good B movie, if that makes sense. And then there's the room where you're laughing at it. 
and this not is with not, it. I think you've gone too far. I don't think it's the, I mean, it's not, it's not inept. the room. It's not inept. It's not, it's, it is, I think it is, I think it knows what it's doing. I think, yeah, maybe the marketing leading up to it led people to believe because it arrived in a environment, a cultural environment where all of a sudden it found itself at the center of what people were talking about in the same way that Wolfenstein 2 did. And yet Wolfenstein 2, they sort of embraced that and were, um, I think, nuanced enough to actually make that work. Far Cry 5 was like, oh, here we are. I guess we'll use this in our marketing. But ultimately what they were making was a game about getting a big rig truck from a dude that has a spray painted naked lady on the side. You know, it's not, this isn't Shakespeare, you know, it's not, it's not even attempting to be that all the characters are very broad booby characters, including the antagonists, including the cadre of, of villains that you're fighting. They're all wildly over the top and, and silly. And yes, there is a self seriousness in that first half an hour of gameplay that, is there to set the tone, but that's in place in all the Far Cry games. Even the Far Cry where you're like this douchebag frat boy who finds himself, which one is that? Three? Three. Where you find yourself, yeah, you've been ATVing and and drinking and jumping out of airplanes and yet, and then you're trapped in the jungle. Like, it's it's the same tone as that game. It's just done with, I think, with a set of circumstances and materials that have more baggage with them that these set of designers I don't think are interested in dealing with. I I I personally disagree with you. I think you're discounting um, some aspects of the story or the problems of the story because of the fun you're having with the game. I am super curious though. I don't know if it's next year, two years, five years, three years, when we'll get it 10 years, but I am super curious to, to have like a GDC, you know, discussion, um, retrospective on this game and what the developers were trying to do and what they achieved because Ubisoft has for a while, you know, I think it was the first, what the first Assassin's Creed, Jared, where they launched with that, you know, this was game was made by player uh, developers from many countries of many religions and many ethnicities. Um, Cause they've, they've pushed buttons with history and takes on cultures and peoples and, and settings. And I think this game is, is doing that same thing or attempting to, I think it's just a miss the same way. I think they've, they've been misses before. It was just other people's cultures and races that they were uh, portraying poorly. Yeah. yeah. Ubisoft is a, is a zany, wacky place. I mean, it's a triple A studio that doesn't seem to follow most of the other, uh, uh, conservative design rules that other AAA studios follow. And when I say conservative, I'm not speaking politically. I'm speaking, they don't always, you know, this is a company that for some reason decides that E3 is the place to spend 20 hours or 20 minutes talking about their new skiing game. Um, <laughs> they, they do some odd things. And I love them for that. Uh, but, you know, the, the game before this, the big Ubisoft game before this, yes, it had Assassin's Creed at the beginning, but somebody still said, you know, would be fun is if we made a stealth action open world game about the Ptolemaic period of ancient Egypt during the Roman occupation. I'll bet you people would love that. <laughs> they were right. They, they were right. Yeah. <laughs> they were right. They were so right. But that's the kind of decision. If you pitched that at, you know, anywhere else, would it get out of one meeting? And, and that's what makes you be neat. And yeah. so I love that they try things. But I don't want to give them a complete pass for the goofiness. I, I had a similar discussion with my uh, friends at Kind of Funny. That'll be in the Gamescast soon, actually, about the same topic we're discussing here in this part of this game. And 
likewise there, I got two very different opinions from two people who were playing about how they handled this issue. It's interesting to see you guys kind of on different sides of this as well. I really appreciate the, the frankness of your response, and I can't wait to get my hands dirty with it. I've got it waiting on my PlayStation. I just haven't gotten to sit down with it yet. It's it's all downloaded and ready to go, so well, let's, I'll let uh, you know what I think when I'm done. I would love to hear. Um, well, let's talk about what your hands are dirty with and uh, dig in a little well, bit. Wait, wait, wait. Let's hear what games he's been playing. I don't want to know necessarily what his hands are. Well, dirty these with. are dirty, dirty games, evidently. Um, uh, <laughs> what is on your playlist, uh, Jared? Uh, okay, so I, I, some of this is uh, I am not very much in uh, in the zeitgeist. The the stuff I've been playing recently that's come out recently was. Um, I have this weird love for arcade games re-released on contemporary platforms. Uh, I love what Arcade Archives does and, and the folks at Hamster. And as a surprise, I didn't actually know this was going to happen. Uh, Nintendo, which tends to forget that they have an arcade history, that Nintendo <laughs> largely started as an arcade game developer along with Game & Watch uh, and dedicated little TV Pong games, has started re-releasing its arcade games on Switch. Uh, one at a time. And yesterday they dumped Punch Out uh, on Switch, just just out of nowhere, kind of. They said they were going to do it in Japan, and out it came in America as well. And uh, Punch Out is a neat arcade game that I have played in the arcade many times. I'm very lucky to live in San Francisco, and there's a nearby arcade that has a Punch Out machine. Uh, so I really enjoy playing it. It has two monitors, the one above the other. And uh, on the Switch screen, they, they solved that by giving you two by four by three displays side by side. And I've been playing Punch Out on Switch since yesterday and having a ball with it. And this is um, not this is not the old NES Punch Out that we all grew up with with little Mac. This is like green uh, wireframe fighter, right from the arcades. Exactly. You, you have two screens. On one screen, you've got like a status bar that shows how you're doing and how the other fighters doing and how much time is left. And then on your screen, you are a green grid of a man that you can see through. So you can see, you're looking from behind him, third person, and you can see through his body and then see your opponent. who's this kind of really lovingly rendered, uh, colorful boxing opponent there. And it controls a little differently than what you get in punch out for the NES. And it looks much, it's a much more sophisticated piece of, of hardware running it. So it's graphically uh, really pretty. I mean, punch out for the NES when it came out was, was a revelation. They actually built a special chip, the MMC two that I think was, only used in that game to make those big fighters possible, but this mm-hmm. is still much prettier. It is not, in my opinion, as nuanced a game as NES Punch-Out! is. I don't think it's quite as refined and perfect, because Punch-Out! is one of the better rhythm games I've ever played, the, the NES version. It's a it's a rhythm game disguised as a sports game, right. and it's, it's fantastic. Uh, it's almost a puzzle game. Uh, yeah. in, in a weird way. It's an action puzzle game because uh, you're always trying to figure out the different ways to get the fighters. Um, it's funny how people one, talk about, you know, like um, Shadow of the Colossus was the first game that was only boss fights. And it's like, well, Punch-Out is only boss fights also. <laughs> yeah, Punch-Out is only boss fights. I, I would also turn people to um, Alien Soldier by Treasure, which mm. is another game that's pretty much a bunch of boss. Gunstar Heroes is really just a bunch of boss fights. Yeah. Um, and uh, So yeah, I, I think that's happened. But you're right, Punch-Out's probably the first. Uh, it's the first one that comes to my mind, certainly. And it is, and the arcade version is uh, is it's a delight. It does have those unfortunate punch out problems where, oh, by the way, uh, you think about you know, everyone here is a stereotype, um, yeah. and that's not something I'm very happy with. Um, it's it's uh, it. I would just love to laugh it off, but I can't really. Yeah, uh, it's from I a different that, time, but that time was wrong. 
<laughs> yeah, and I think that needs to be said. Uh, in terms of the mechanics, it's uh, it's pretty fantastic and cool. uh, and an interesting piece of history to go back and take a look at. I've also been playing uh, Kirby's new uh, the the new Allies game, and yeah. uh, that's fun. Um, it's easy. It's a Kirby game. It's a mainline Kirby game. Um, the mechanics are way more deep and complex than a game that simple needs them to be. Uh, I have a huge move set and every mode with every weapon, and then I can add friends to my party to give new abilities, and then I can call on those friends to power up the weapons I already have to give those new modes, and then I can combine attacks with those new weapons, with those guys to make new... Th- and this is all in a game that you can defeat without doing any power-ups at all. Right. It's all the, just, just there for the fun, yeah. um, and I like it. Uh, I like this kind of... It's a less chaotic version of New Super Mario Brothers Wii, where it's much harder to screw each other over and much easier to cooperate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like it. Um, it's pretty and you can beat it easily, and it's a marvelously engineered, fun, bunch-of-people-on-a-couch kind of game that's also got a pretty good AI, so you can enjoy it when you're playing on the train or the bus as well. Um, Yeah, I've enjoyed that a lot. They won my heart over, really, the moment that I, uh, my friend helped me transform into a giant curling puck, whatever those things are called. <laughs> yeah. That kicked me through a wall to smash enemies. I was like, sold, I'm in. Right. Um, yeah. It's certainly beautiful, too. Man, the art direction in that game is just stunning. Yeah, the Kirby games, by and large, are really pretty. I, yeah. uh, Kirby's Epic Yarn is still one of the prettiest games I've ever played. I agree. And yeah. Are you guys Kirby fans? Yeah, man. My favorite Kirby, I think, is Canvas Curse. I still love that game. <sighs> That's because it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that helps. That certainly helps. <laughs> yeah, there's, and I love the, I love the Kirby kind of goes in that cycle of mainline spinoff, mainline spinoff. Yeah. And those, those spinoffs like Mass Attack or Canvas Curse or uh, Dream Course are often better than the mainline games. Um, but I think people forget the mainline games are these really solid platforms. Yeah, um, I love this game because uh, they're like, what's Kirby's power? Well, Kirby can eat people and absorb their powers. And then someone was like, great. But what if you could also throw hearts uh, and absorb people's powers? Okay. <laughs> it's like, he just has yeah, a new yeah. way of getting powers all of a sudden. Like, you can still, you can eat people once. And then after that, you power up different ways. But it's like, they take risks with Kirby and they've take, certainly taken risks with Mario and now Zelda, of course, with, um, uh, come on. The the new, yeah, Breath of the Wild. But Kirby, I feel like, has been a character that they've always, done drastically different things with from iteration to iteration that that keeps the games and the franchise fun yeah he's a big pink ball so you can stick him in almost anything and he works <laughs> and, right. and i and yeah and i think i really do think that's a lot of it i mean he's designed that way originally before he was even pink he was white and that was so they could have something that looked good on the game boy screen well what's yeah. easier to draw than a ball with feet and eyes and <laughs> um and, he, and they wanted kids to be able to draw him. And, and when I w- taught school in Japan, my kids all drew Kirby all the time. Uh, they drew me as cool. Kirby, as a matter of fact, <laughs> oh, which wow. was kind of weird. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. And, yeah, absolutely. They, they, um, they just they draw these characters, and he's an easy one to draw. But, yeah, he can take on any – you know, video game characters, often we project ourselves onto them, the silent protagonists. Right. right. Yeah. You know, you've got Chrono and Chrono Trigger. You've got you've got the silent protagonist of a lot of first person shooters and you project yourself. Kirby extends that to everything. <laughs> yeah. The uh, yeah. Amorphous blob. Uh, put your features on if you want. 
<laughs> exactly. Like yeah. it, this game did make me want a Mega Man 12 where, or a Mega Man and Friends where I eat one Robomaster and then three more join me. And, there you and go. the four of us all run around together uh, kicking butt. I want that game to exist so bad now. This game made me uh, want a Super Smash Brothers single player campaign game. Subspace Emissary! <laughs> right. Right. I, I'm with you. I would love that. That sounds great to me. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, because uh, Chris and I also disagree about this game, uh, Edith Finch. Uh, what Remains of Edith Finch was on my top five of last year. It is a game that made me cry. It is a game I absolutely adore. Uh, and I suspect you are on Team Kanata on this one uh, in, the, in the sense that you seem like the kind of person that would love it. Yeah, I am on Team Kanata with this one. I, I put Edith Finch on the sheet here because, actually, my wife and I like to play games together. And th- that works for me in two ways. One, sometimes we experience things for the first time together, but sometimes I get to go back to things that I've loved with her and experience again kind of in the passenger seat. Mm. You know, she she steers. Walking sims are great for that. Uh, right. Uh, so are, yeah, and so we do a lot of that together. And so it was extraordinary to get to share that with her. And it's a short enough experience that we could play through it very quickly. She actually, after the uh, after the monster segment, she made us stop for the night because she got scared. And then we came when the sun went up and finished the game, uh, which is <laughs> a comic book very... one segment. No, before that, the one with the, uh, the one with the uh, snake. Oh, right, um, right, 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 right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, without saying too much about that. Um, yeah. And Edith Finch was a game that was originally recommended to me some time ago by uh, Brenda Romero, who's uh, the lady that originally helped develop wizardry along with Surtech. And as John Romero's wife now, mm-hmm. um, and they make games together in Ireland. She's a great game developer. Um, and she said, this is just amazing. And she got me. When I started, I was like, I like walking sims in general. And I was like, hey, sure, I'm walking toward a house in the Pacific Northwest. This is familiar. <laughs> I've done this before. And then I was like, this is fun. The writing's good. And I like how the little words drop everywhere. And then, holy cow, when it takes that first turn. Yeah. And, the, and then it just... It, doesn't stop and giant sparrow found this way to take a bunch of very interesting ideas about storytelling and kind of subvert what you expect out of walking sim and create be like you know what we have this beautiful little idea here and a beautiful little idea here and by using these time travel vignettes we can use them all in the same game and they resonate and work together very well and uh that story has just enough ambiguity, but just enough resolution to feel really fulfilling. I was involved. I did make me cry. Scared the living crap out of me the first time I played it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And now, now Christian, on the other hand, you, you had a very different take on this. Uh, and I, I'm curious where you came from on it. What were your thoughts? And, and hindsight, <clears throat> excuse me, and looking back on it, I think my biggest disconnect with the game was the suspension of disbelief. I, I wasn't able to carry it forward in terms of this being sold to me as a real world and a real family. And I kept having problems with the family's actions. It's almost like if you're, when you're watching the horror movie, you know, it's a horror movie and you're okay with the person going, Jeff, Jared, stay here. I'm going to go explore that sound alone without a flashlight. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. Okay, see you later, buddy. Like, you're going to die. But for me, in, in playing through Edith Finch, I just felt like I wasn't sure if this was a real world, totally fictitious. This family kept making dumb decisions. 
Um, the house was so weird. Uh, the interactions with the real world and this, in this fantasy and what was happening and what wasn't. And I was never able to get fully invested in the protagonist or her family. Uh, and that kept me from really enjoying the game. So I, I can, I think a lot of that I, I would agree with, frankly. Um, what happened to me, and I can't speak for anybody else, was that a lot of that suspension of disbelief got laid aside because of the nature of my family. Um, I come from a very loving, and in a lot of ways, highly dysfunctional family. Um, I'm not speaking about my, my mother and father there so much as I'm about my extended family and our long, strange history, uh, which includes a lot of mental illness and suicide and tragedy and crazy decisions and a sort of a legacy of feeling doomed and of the sins of the fathers and the sins of the mothers being passed down to the next generation. There's a lot of that in my family. And so this game felt haunting. And a lot of that, don't go in there into the all-concealing shadow, don't make that decision, felt kind of familiar. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons this game hit me so hard. Um because that idea of feeling like I'm a very sick person, I am, and, and I'm not trying to be to be uh, uh, not trying to use levity there. It's a it's a lifelong struggle with mental illness that has come very close to to ending me a couple of times. And when, as as somebody who is sick and struggles with sickness. The idea that there's this thing that's out to get you that came and hurt somebody before you and hurt the person before them and hurt your, your aunt and hurt great grandma and hurt, that is very familiar because that's my family tree. Hmm. And uh, I keep waiting for it to come get me. So that's why this game frightened me so much, I think, and why I was able to suspend that. That said, Christian, I, I agree that the, all those things are problems with this game. Well, I, 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 I'm sorry, Christian, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. I think that's what makes games so special is the way they can connect with people. And this clearly what were the developers telling a story that they were passionate about. And The Last of Us is one of my favorite games of all time. I just happened to, to play that literally, you know, with a, a newborn, my first daughter on my lap, like as just like a tiny little nug swaddled, swaddled on my lap. Right. So like, how would I have experienced that game if it came out when I was a sophomore in college or, or something like that, or how it related to me personally. And I love that games and game storytelling is able to tell these personal stories in a way, and they don't all need to be either storyless, like just Pac-Man arcade games or bombastic action movies. And we're able to have these smaller, intimate games that um, are easy to recommend because they're not a huge time commitment. And then for some people, they'll really resonate with. And for other people, you know, I'll have played it and moved on. <laughs> well, well, I I would even go further and and not to invalidate any of that, because I think it's all beautifully said by both of you about these games that, landed on you in very personal ways. My experience with Edith Finch in particular uh, doesn't come from any kind of personal connection in so far as I don't, I don't have those kinds of experiences in my past or in my family, but just in the sort of meditation on death, which I think is a very universal idea is this game kind of directly confronts death. And uh, that is something that, 
I think about a lot just as a, a human living on earth. <laughs> and I think that is one of the things that I found so beautifully touching and moving about it is staring at that directly and asking if it's always a bad thing, if it's, uh, if there's some beauty in it, perhaps if there is, um, you know, what that means to be a human being. And, and I think that's what great art does. I'm so glad you said that. I, I, I'm not trying to do too much self-plugging here. I just want you to let you know that when it pops up, I'm not stealing it. Um, the third episode of Hop Lip Jump is about uh, generations, about new life, about parents. But the episode after that is about death, and it's going to lean very heavily on Edith Finch and the same things you just said. So I'm oh, actually kind of happy to hear you saying that. We're on the same page. That's awesome. I, I look forward to watching involves, it. It actually includes your voice from this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's actually just you speaking about it the whole time. But yeah, that's that's I'm I'm going to make an episode about death and and that was kind of the genesis of, of that. So, uh, it's really to cool it. that you said that. I feel it, yeah. All right, let's uh this has been wonderful. I man, it's so great having you on uh Jared and and we will continue, but first I do need to thank our second sponsor, which is Blue Apron. Oh man, what a left turn because <laughs> this is well, it's not so much a left turn. This is another universal thing that helps everybody, and I truly love it. Oh, my gosh. I love Blue Apron so much. This was a sponsor that I begged to sponsor us because I love it so much. I recommend it to people all the time. Literally today, we are recording here on April 1st, uh, the evening of April 1st, which was uh, Easter. I had a big event that I went to. I talked to no fewer than three people about Blue Apron because my wife and I love it. It changed our life. It turned me into somebody that actually enjoys cooking, enjoys making things for my family. There is such a joy in that now. And honestly, the impediments to me finding that earlier in my life were some of the things that Blue Apron directly eliminates. Number one, figuring out what to cook. I always felt this analysis paralysis of not knowing even where to begin, infinite amount of recipes online or in cookbooks. I didn't know what to make. Blue Apron has great recipes and they deliver them right to your house. And then secondly, going to the grocery store and buying the ingredients that I need, invariably I would buy something for a particular recipe and then have a bunch of leftover stuff that just went bad in my fridge because I didn't need to need the rest of it. And I felt guilty about wasting that stuff. And I spent more than I needed to spend because I bought more than I needed. Blue Apron eliminates all of that. You get only the amount of the ingredients you need. You have these great, delicious, healthy meals that you cook yourself. You know what goes into them. You taste the freshness. You taste the uh, the the care that you put into it, and you get to give that to your loved ones if you have uh, loved ones, or just for yourself. Just sitting down to a meal that you made is so satisfying. These are really, honestly. Some some of my favorite nights is when I when I make a Blue Apron meal for my wife, for my family. And we're going to help you out. We, we wanna, want you to check out Blue Apron. I honestly think I've gotten so many tweets from people that are like, oh, my gosh, I got my first Blue Apron. I love it. We're going to give you $30 off your first order if you go to blueapron.com slash DLC. Check out this week's menu. See what kinds of really delicious meals that they have available. And then get your $30 off. Try the service. It's blueapron.com slash DLC. And then when you're done, send me a tweet. Let me know what you thought, good or bad. I suspect it'll be good, but I'd love to hear Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Sounds yummy. It is. It's so good. Virtual reality. Beyond.
I am excited to talk VR, not because I've been playing a bunch of things, but because Christian has been playing a bunch of things, including, let's start here, uh, with our suspended, uh, oft-delayed discussion of Moss. You, You finished Moss. You gave me a hard time about not finishing it. You had did. said that several times that you played it in one sitting. I, I envied you and your leisurely lifestyle. I'm just kidding. I know you have nothing better to do. All you do is play VR all day. Yeah, just uh, sit around waiting for my blue weapon to arrive playing VR. <laughs> yeah. um, I walked away from the game late one night, and I sat back down to play it again. And boy, Jeff, let me tell you, uh, I, I walked away from the game like literally on the second to last uh, screen. This <laughs> A makes me tremendously sad and B makes me a little bit angry because how did you not know it was the end? It had, it ends in such a crescendo. I, I felt that it was, but I wasn't sure if they, I don't want to spoil the story, but there's a, a big event that happens and then you head to a, 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 a very important looking location. And I wasn't sure if there was going to be a, bigger that's called the denouement the denouement christian (laughs) when you put it that way um it was also very late at night and um i already don't sleep enough but neither here nor there uh what an incredible game (laughs) what an incredible game um it it blew me away and i think it is one of it i think jared you mentioned this earlier you like seeing what people are doing in third person maybe this was pre-show chats maybe it's not on the show um i think it is on the show actually i think it just came up during, during the episode yeah oh cool great um well guys on the pre-show we said even cooler stuff guess you had to be here to hear <laughs> um it, I, I think it's one of the best show pieces um especially on psvr for vr like that first person experience is cool putting on batman's gauntlets and putting the mask on and seeing yourself in the mirror is cool but I, I, I think for selling someone on the technology, there is something even um, more interesting and dynamic and giving them something they've seen a million times and giving them a new way to see and interact with that world. And I say most people have seen or at least somewhat familiar with whether it be Mario 64 or some version of a 3D platformer and then letting them experience that traditional style game, air quote, in a new way and the new perspective that VR brings to it and then adding to that how dang adorable quill is um it's a real it's a real charmer i agree and and i did you think that the the end i just thought that ending sequence as sort of an action chase sequence to end the game was just so thrilling and so fun i was kind of breathless throughout it and i just think the game has so many great ideas and is just gorgeous and it gives you that sense of being inside a fairy tale so well uh, i can't and, and it teases that this is not the end of the story so i I just can't wait for the next episode yeah i hope there are many more episodes and it's it's really well done and it does not overstay its welcome and it's totally finishable in in one you know longer sitting but well worth the the price of admission and just just a joy just spending time like i wanted quill to come with me after the game you know just be be my little ar buddy and and climb onto my shirt or something again that jeff you said Oh, sorry. Didn't I was going to say that you moss. said being inside a uh, fairy tale about mm. moss. I, I, uh, I, I've been on board with uh, VR since they first hauled that giant thing into a, my arcade in, in the '90s and stuck the you know the, the ten thousand dollar piece of equipment that traveled around the country with a big helmet attached. And <laughs> I walked around in a pterodactyl and a battle mech tried to kill me or something. They right. made it like seven pixels. Lawnmower man. Sold. Yeah, I was <laughs> sold then the first time I did it, but. 
what you said there about putting inside the fairy tale, I think people are finally starting to nail it. I, I've always enjoyed VR, but I played a demo, I think at Vive a couple of years ago, where I was playing what amounted to a bullet hell shooter. And it was one of my first experiences with VR at, in third person. Mm-hmm. And I was moving my fighter with my with uh, with the controller around 3D space right. and weaving in and out of things. And I was like, oh, oh, I get it. <laughs> this is where – because it's not about putting you in the eyes of a, of a character or a person looking out in, in, in the typical first-person mode. It's about putting you in a believable world where things feel magical. And that's what experiences like this we need to do. And I love to see us moving out of that infancy into this kind of mature brand of storytelling. It's it's extraordinary. Yeah, and and that's the thing I've been saying um, for for a long time now that that I don't know that people that haven't experienced VR truly understand. Isn't it isn't that there are just experiences in VR you can't have out of it, or just that VR. Uh, works well. It's that honestly, I truly believe there isn't a kind of game that doesn't get accentuated by being in VR. I truly think that any game that I love, if I'm playing Uncharted or I'm playing, um, I don't know, any, any game that's amazing, I fantasize about being able to look around inside it. I want to be inside it. And we, it can still be that same game. It still can be true to the to the nature of what is fun about that game. Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that you want a game, you'd be okay if it's someone gives you the same game, like they take a great game, like let's say the same great game, and then they give you a free update to get you inside of that game? Yeah, like yeah. That but, would but excite you? What are the odds of anyone ever... And you said free, Christian? That seems insane. What? Why would anyone take a game that's already a great, great game that people love, and then make a free update to put you inside that game in VR. Who would do that? Like the whole game. Yeah. Like the whole game for free. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess something, something pun wipeout is what I say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's how that goes. That's uh, how we do a segue. <laughs> man, uh, listeners, Wipeout Omega Collection on PS4, already stunning, already a stunning package of incredible games that I, I loved. Um, on the PSP when they first came out and then bought in on the, on the bot again on the PlayStation 3 and now on Omega Collection. The VR update is here and it is just incredible. I don't think I'll ever be as competitive, uh, in VR as I am, you know, floating far behind my, my ship as it speeds through the tracks because you can see more of the course, but playing it in VR is just a phenomenal experience. And the fact that it is the entire game um for free and that it runs as smoothly as it does and all of the um, sensitivity settings that they have in, in, in terms of easing you into the game or if you get nauseous playing VR the way that they were able to make like that was the joke right that was literally the joke they made is that you need a barf bag to play it and you don't in any way shape or form it is so beautifully designed sitting in the cockpit of your ship you know flying down these space tracks and going upside down and hard banks left and watching the explosions of a missile, the particle effects sprinkle all around the HUD of your cockpit as you're just zooming through these courses. It is a showstopper. It is unbelievable. And this is from a guy who I think I still have it up archived on my YouTube, literally got blue in the face playing Dirt Rally VR and Oculus, like that nauseous. And Wipeout Omega Collection um, 
I, I have all the safe settings on. I haven't gone totally free roam yet. Like right now, the way I play, the cockpit stays parallel to the track. So it's almost like your wings are on a gyroscope that kind of um, float around you and bend and turn as you angle. And I haven't turned all of that stuff off yet. But playing it with those safety settings on um, hasn't detracted from me being competitive in the game against the AI and just... My God, it's one of my favorite soundtracks, uh, definitely a vestige of its time, but now playing it sitting in the cockpit, like I'm actually in these tournaments. And that is, I, I honestly don't understand why it's free. I really don't. It's incredible. And the game itself I mean, maybe, is, isn't that expensive uh, to, to start, right? It's only 20 bucks, isn't it? Yeah, if it's not, you, it, it's constantly on sale if it's not that price right now. Yeah. Maybe the market's small enough that it, this is just a proof of concept that they want to go out there and say, hey, by the way, we want as many people as possible to experience the fact that we have arguably the most impressive VR game available right now or something way up there, something people are talking about. It might be worth more to them to get the free marketing out of it than it would be to get the extra VR sales money they would get otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, to go back to that news story we talked about, it's less expensive than ever, and here are these great, Great experiences, Moss and Wipeout Omega Collection, both of which are exclusive to PlayStation VR. So, you know, if you're thinking about it, I'm not I'm not here to make a commercial for it, but I do believe in it, and I think uh, you know it, these these are games that are that are really really cool and prove how awesome and compelling the the technology is. Not we we know now. Jeff Kanata is in the pocket of big Sony. We just <laughs> big, got to prove big, right there. Big virtual reality is what a uh, big VR has bought you off. Sold out. Uh, if only I'm I am available to be purchased. Uh, if anybody's listening, uh, just please send me send me money. Uh, <laughs> what will you give? What will you give me if I send you a twenty dollar bill in the mail? What can I get? Uh, I'll definitely give twenty dollars of VR hype uh, directly to your door uh, on your doorstep. All right. Yeah. One, All right. One quick. I, I'm gonna put. Oh, sorry, I didn't interrupt, Christian. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. One quick second, just because, just in case I am unclear in the chat, people are saying it's not free. I guess maybe Omega Collection is $40 regular retail. I don't know the price of Omega Collection. I've owned it since it came out. What I am trying to say, and maybe poorly articulated, the VR update that brings VR to the entire game is free. So if you already own Omega Collection, you get the VR update completely free. Omega Collection costs whatever it costs. I don't know. Fair enough. Thank you for the clarification. Um, all right, guys. Time to carve out a little bit of tabletop time. Right now, right now. All right, I'm very excited to be joined now by superstar game designer and friend of the show, Mr. Rob Davio. Welcome back to DLC. Thank you. It's been a few years since I've been here. It has. Here. It's been a while. That's, it's been too long. And you have been very busy. Uh, you have started a basically a new company, right? A new endeavor, uh, restoring games that have fallen out of print, uh, not just reprinting games, but actually going back and reimagining them for uh, uh modern times is that right yeah yeah bespoke custom restorations um Ooh. we don't actually they're not bespoke they're all mass produced in a factory but um yeah but I, I for the past two years in addition to my original board game designs i've been spending time starting up a company that i'm a partner in called restoration games which does exactly what you said we find these out of print games, at least 15 years old, but we're willing to go back 
decades and decades, and we're looking for some real old ones, and we reboot them. So it's, they're not pure nostalgia. So it's not just we're going to take the Happy Days game and reprint it exactly with the same <laughs> graphics. Uh, and it's not just a reprint. It's a restoration. We take a game and we we say, well, if this was presented to us right now and we we're going to make it, what would we do? Like what graphics we put? Would we change the theme? How would we change the gameplay to make it work? And we have three games out in the past year and our, our, our big one, our coup, which is uh, on Kickstarter now or very soon, depending on when this comes out, uh, is Fireball Island, which was our yeah. by far our number one requested game when this company spun up. Well, I have uh, some personal connection to Fireball Island for sure. I mean, it, it originally was released in 1986, smack dab in the middle of my childhood. It was a game that had kind of mythical status. Uh, I, I remember it having that when I was a kid because the commercials were so awesome. And it was this big bombastic 80s monstrosity it was this three-dimensional board game that had marbles that rolled down big mountains and it just seemed so cool as a kid and i always wanted it and never got it i think i had a friend who had it and i played it a few times but then when we were doing the totally rad show several years ago all of us connected, all of uh, Dan Trachtenberg, Alex Albrecht, and I con uh, connected over our shared love and fondness in our memory of it. And Dan managed to find a copy on eBay for over $100. And we bought an old beat-up copy from eBay and played it on the show and all remembered how much fun it was. And, and uh, Although I must say, I don't think the game itself was particularly well-designed. It just had this awesome gimmick, right? Is, yep. it, do you, would you agree with that? Oh, that's exactly – I. that's exactly what we – decided uh i was a little old for the game when it came out was when i was finishing high school or middle of high school going into college during its heyday um you kind of hit the nail on the head though it was such an 80s game just like more and louder and bigger right like marbles <laughs> and a giant tray no there's this whole group of people very much like yourself who remember the commercial remember it being like a chase game like this guy has it in my neighborhood and i don't really like him but i'm willing to go over to his house for an <laughs> afternoon and play it or try to yeah. get him to play it um, and then you play it when you're older and it's very much a product of its time. Like you roll a die and you move and you get knocked over and the marbles aren't quite as fast as you remember. And the, you know, the Island isn't as tall as you remember. So we had this challenge in front of us to make the game like as big as you remember and as fast mm -hmm. as you remember. And, you know, as kinetic as you remember knowing full well that that memory is from childhood where everything was bigger and louder. And right. you know, you'd be thinking like, I think like, I, my dog slept in this thing. It was so big. Like I turned it over and took a bath in it. Like everyone has these over the top <laughs> memories. So that was, that's what we do is we kind of strip it down and be like, well, what are the fun parts? What do people remember? What, what's sort of the core? And then how do we build a new game around it? And, and that's what we did. So we've made it to make it taller, bigger, uh, faster, fit in a smaller box and then have modern gameplay. Like those are our, those are the things that we've set out to do. And I think we've done. Well, it's, I'm so excited to, to finally see and play the finished product because the games that you have already done with restoration games, I've been so fond of, especially Downforce, which I've played many times at this point and really, really love. But it feels like, I mean, obviously, as you say, each of these projects is its own animal and you handle each of them on a case by case. But it feels like the job here was, was a bit bigger than perhaps the previous restoration games. Is yeah. that accurate? Yeah, this was big. 
And I'd worked for Hasbro for 14 years and I'd been in and around toys and plastics. And so I had a bit of confidence that I could land this thing. And we did, but it was, I had to learn more than I expected because at Hasbro, I was surrounded by people like engineers and factory liaisons who I'd say, I want this. And they go, yeah, okay, here it is. And I sort of had to recreate that network of engineers and plastic experts. And, you know, I learned a lot uh, about how to design vacuum form islands in the past six months, but I, the results are worth it. I was, I was spending yesterday and today we got the first prototype in from China and what they're doing is they're printing it on a clear material, a clear plastic material, and they're going to print on the underside of it. So it'll show through. So you, oh, cool. you won't scratch the paint off by using it because it's underneath the material. So they sent us this clear set of islands. It's actually three different trays that you stack on top of each other. You put the two shores down and then you stack the third one on top. Like you're, you're stacking cups, like a little pyramid. It's clear. And we're going into our Kickstarter and you can't see it. It's like, look at the invisible (laughs) Island, right? The the spaces aren't labeled, nothing's labeled. And so my wife, who is a fine artist and myself, who is a determined artist, uh, (laughs) turned them over and hand painted all of these. So we could finally, So you painted them from the inside as well, just like they're going to. Yeah. You have to, well, yeah, they're going to print them, but we had to paint them. It's this weird thing. We have to do it upside down. You put like the trees on first and then you put the grass and then you put the path and then you put the stone, like you have to build it upside down. And we finally finished it and we set it up and I looked at it and I'm like, I fell in love with it. Right. Everything I had seen till now had been a, a rendering or a clay model or a 3D print out of scale. Like I had never seen this thing really together. And I keep walking by and and playing with it, even though I have many, many things to do to get the Kickstarter ready. So I keep, I'm play testing, you know, I'm, I'm checking it. It's, it's all working great. I don't really need to be checking it, but I keep playing with it. So I'm very excited about how it came up, but yeah, it took about five or six months longer than we had budgeted for, but Doing it wrong, right? I mean, this, the phrase is, it's like only late once, but it's bad forever. So yeah. uh, hopefully like taking this extra time, I'm thrilled with where it ends up because we've got just marbles bouncing off marbles and trees that, uh, trees on the island. How much do you know about it? Probably not much. I don't know much about, yeah, the, what what you're making. I was actually going to ask if you're still using marbles. Uh, oh, yeah. So it sounds like you are. Yeah. Yeah. So let me give you the little, the little pitch is there's, there's three trays and they stack on top of each other and you still get the idol at the top, the big bad guy. And we, uh, we don't say it's na- his name. It's a little superstition we have. Uh, so I will talk elliptically about he at the top of the mountain and you still drop marbles in the top of them, but instead of having one mouth, he's got three and I'll explain why in a second. When we looked at the original game. It's a roll and move. You roll a die, you move a number of spaces. So you have no control over that. And then when it's time to roll a marble, you'll be like, okay, I'm going to roll a marble, Jeff, I'm going to get you. And I'd roll a marble and we'd all watch it and it would hit you like every time. It was actually not very dramatic. The marbles were in deep trenches. So we turned it on its head. And now during the game, you have more control over what you're doing. You play a card like I'm going to move eight and then I'm going to flick a marble. But we designed the whole island to have a lot of variety about where the marbles will go. There's a lot of predictability, but there's a, there's some unpredictability. So one, for example, one of the things, there are seven trees that have roots that stick out into the paths and you can rotate them through card play. So you're either diverting the channels where the marbles will go to either to protect yourself or go towards someone else. We have marbles that are balanced on the board. And sometimes when a marble goes by, it just kisses it and knocks it off. So now you have two in play like multi-ball and 
in pinball and sometimes it misses it. And when you drop a marble into the top of the idol's head, it will come out one of the three mouths. So you're not quite sure which one will come out. Most of the time it comes out the center one. And what we're trying to do is make every time a marble goes to have that feeling of a buzzer beater shot or a miniature golf course or watching a roulette wheel, like, wait, wait, ah, uh, you know, is, is that putt going to go in? Is that ball going to go in? Like, and it works. Like the first time we play test it halfway through the game, I pointed out around the table. I said, Hey, we're all standing up. And it's like, Oh yeah. I wonder why I'm like, cause it's working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the fun, man. That That's the, that's the really cool thing about it's kind of, uh, a mini dexterity game, but you're not using any dexterity. You're just sort of like, you know, hoping that uh, physics works out your way. Um, it's a it's, little it's, bit. There's a tiny bit of skill in this one because the rule is yeah. you, you launch a marble and we have specifically you can use one finger. You can't use your finger and your thumb, but you can try to do a little mini skill shot, right? Oh, cool. And my 14-year-old son took this to the limit that only a 14 year old doing. He's like, I'm going to knock you off that bridge, which is like 12 linear inches away and three inches down and did it nailed me in the head. And, and so I'm like, okay, <laughs> let me go back to the rules. And no, oh, that was all within the rules. So, uh, so there, <laughs> I don't think many people will sort of do these chip shots that he did, but there is a little bit of where we position the marbles. You can often launch them in three or four different directions to try to get it to go on the path that you want. So you're like, I'm going to try to hit it this way and have it kind of sink into the second path and there's no guarantee you'll do it but uh that's that's the goal so there's a tiny bit of of skill but mostly it's using predictability uh, it sounds really fun so you're you're sometimes playing offense with the marbles with the the fireballs and sometimes you're playing defense trying to you know use your cards to reroute it away from you if you're getting closer to the summit is that is that the idea yeah we well we changed the um we changed the gameplay as well. The original game was a path game and it had a few branches in the path, but everyone starts in the same place and you run around and you get to the summit and you take the gem and then it's a mad dash to the beach and you can steal it from each other. And whoever gets to the docks with the gem wins. And we still have a gem and we still have the ability to steal it, but we kind of rethemed it as we were going. We, we basically said, what if this island was dormant for 30 years and now has been reopened as kind of the world's worst adventure theme park? Um, okay. Right. Like the, the, the eighties, Indiana Jones, Goonies, like we're on an adventure was, was fine, but it's a little tired right now. So we, we kind of played around with it. And so the, the figures are just tourists who are dropped onto this Island, like have a nice day. And <laughs> within seconds, they're like, this is very, very bad. And the only way the helicopter is going to come back is if you go to different parts of the Island and you take snapshots, basically you just take a card, like here's a picture, here's a picture, here's a picture, mm. run back to the helicopter pad. The helicopter will come get you along the way. You can also collect treasures along the path. And so ah. when, if you were the first one to get three photos and go back to the helipad, everyone has two turns to try to get there. And then you just add up who has the most points. You get points for your photos. You get points. If you stole the gem, you get points for treasures you had, and then you get docked for points if you didn't get back to the helicopter. So it's not one path. There's three immediate paths right from the helipad. And then those quickly branch twice as well. So everyone can kind of split up and run around and go into caves and go into different places and without getting like, super nerdy about it, even though that's what I do. There's just three different types of treasures. It's not hard. You might be going for blue and I'm going for red and I'm, you know, th mm -hmm. those sorts of things. And right. if on my turn, I knock you over with a marble, you have to give me one of your treasures. So you right. do, I get a reward for knocking you over. 
And I don't know if you remember in the original game, but there was um, these cards. You get a card if you get knocked over. You get a souvenir. So I knock you over. I get a treasure. But you have a cool card that kind of gives you a revenge moment on a future turn. And that that's basically the whole game. It's It takes about 40 minutes. It can play down to like eight years old. So I don't know if I'm making it seem much more complicated than it is because at its heart, it's move and knock someone over with a marble and laugh at them. Yeah. Well, that's what you want. And it's kind of the the dream come true because as we've discussed, you know, coming back to it as an adult, I was like, man, this is still, there's still something really fun here. I just wish it was a better designed game. I just wish it had, you know, more actual competition at its heart, you know, some actual uh, decisions to be made because really there weren't any in that original game. There are here. So it looks like I can pencil you in for one order, sir. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited. How many, uh, how many people does it play? It plays two to four with the base game, but we're throwing, uh, three expansions in right from the start for Kickstarter. And one of which lets you play a fifth player. Uh, very cool. The premise of that is called the last adventurer. It's like an Indiana Jones type. He's, he's an eighties trope. He comes out of the woods, like come with me if you want to live. And it gives you that fifth player. And also he knows the ways of the island. So he gives everyone player powers. It's almost like you have an instant montage and suddenly you're, you know, you're awesome. Um, right. And it has a foam boulder that comes with it that pops out of caves. It's like oh, a nerf ball. It's like a ping pong ball size that you can roll down in little mini snake marbles that rest <laughs> on the rocks. And then, cause you know, why do it have to be snakes? And if you get bit by a snake, you get poisoned and then you, your turn gets semi random for a while. So yeah, if you want a little more adventure and you want a foam boulder, we have that one for you. We got a pi- pirate ship expansion. Oh wow! So is it? Are, are there expansions that like literally add to the to the board? Yeah, the pirate ship is a completely separate island. If you remember the original game, there are caves. You go in and you roll a die to see which caves you come out. And we we still have basically that. And there's caves on the pirate ship island. So it's a completely separate island. I assume you're going to put it next to it on the table. You could put it in the next room if you really wanted to role play it. And when you go into a cave, you can come out on the pirate ship island. It's the ship that's crashed and it's got a a mast with a crow's nest precariously next to it. And you put black marbles in like cannonballs until eventually it will tip over and spill them onto the deck. And there's, there's different treasures there that are worth more. And they also let you take an extra turn, but mostly, and then there's extra cards that go into the deck when you're playing with the pirate expansion that let it makes it a lot more cutthroat. It's a lot more stealing. It's a lot more take that. So like we have that expansion that is more of the, I want to be a little more aggressive with my friends. I want to be able to steal more and be nastier you can kind of buy the 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 uh, wreck of the crimson cutlass is the name of the expansion, and then you have that part, and then the last one, which is uh, gives more skill shots, is called Crouching Tiger Hidden Bees, and <laughs> it involves a tiger and bees. We kind of just really were on the nose with that one. Um, the do you remember the game Ants in the Pants? Oh sure, right. We pushed down on a little plastic ant. Uh, we yeah. molded one of those to look like an oddly jacked tiger, right? <laughs> like when we finally sculpt her, like this tiger works out all the time. <laughs> uh, so you can play a card and then you push down and you try to get the tiger to leap up on the island and just maul someone. Um, it's all that crouching, you know, really works. It's all that glutes. crouching. Yeah. He, he just crouches <laughs> and then he just leaps and the bees crack us up. It's a little beehive filled with 10 tiny marbles that you pour in the, 
the head of the idol and they pour out his three miles and spill across the island. And if they hit you, you get stung and it, it slows you down for a couple turns. So you may not make it back to the helicopter. So we got all these different things. We got tigers and pirate ships and adventurers and boulders and, or just the base game. So that, that sounds like great fun. Uh, I, I know that when I heard about restoration games as a concept, I went, I, I thought first thing, Fireball Island would be amazing, but that'll never happen. Was there a, was it a, a challenge to make this a reality to, to actually even get the rights for Fireball, Fireball Island? Uh, not for me, but my partner, uh, Justin, who founded <laughs> the company is a lawyer by trade. And so yeah, this was our number one game, right? Everyone was asking for Fireball Island. And so he's like, yeah. I'll start on the trail. And I mean, like, this guy's awesome. We were looking for the rights to some other game. He's like, eh, I'll call my private investigator to track him down. I'm like, wait, what? Oh my like, you have <laughs> one, like, on retainer? He's like, nah, it's the one I always use. And, like, within three hours, it's like, here's the phone number and email of this person. Or like, wow. Uh, so we, we tracked it down, and it took about almost a year to put the deal together because we had to find it. And then there was another company that was interested and we had to convince them why as a new company, we'd be good at it. And we, you know, had meetings at toy fair and eventually put the deal together last summer and have been working on it since then. That's so cool. Uh, I, I just, I can't imagine this isn't going to be a, a huge, huge success because I, I know I want it and I'm sure everybody from my generation does. And it sounds like it's fun for kids now too, you know? Well, we tried to make it go down to there's minimal reading. I mean, the card says like move eight and launch a marble, right? So, and there's going to be a big picture on it. So it can play pretty young. So we're hoping we get people who are like your age with a, you know, a young family, maybe not as young as yours, but, uh, you know, who have six, seven, eight year olds, 10 year olds, and, and they can buy it yeah. and, and hopefully have, you know, a fun time knocking each other over until the kid cries or something like that. But <laughs> well, now you need to do mousetrap because that's the other one that, uh, I always loved as a kid and, and was really just not a good game, but man, a you can't resist it as a kid as the mouse drive, the Rube Goldberg machine you get to build. It's a, it's amazing. The reason we won't do most trap is you can still buy it. Hasbro still makes it. Is that so? Well, they did six years ago when I worked there. Uh, but Hasbro has been sort of trying to stay under a $20 price point on all their games, but inflation goes up. So I suspect most trap has gotten quite small compared to our childhoods just out of necessity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, How do you pick, the, the, your targets, is it, is, are games that you remember fondly that you know of that you think shouldn't be out of print or are, are there games that you came across that you weren't even aware of that, that were good, uh, good subjects for this? Uh, well, our first line, which was stop thief came from Justin and I suggested downforce cause I used to play a, an earlier version called Daytona 500 with my kids when they were younger. And then we have a trick taking card game which we did as a good luck charm because it was the game that got me into gaming. It was also the game that got me my job at Hasbro. So that was a non-scientific method. But since then (laughs) it's um, on our website, people put requests in. And so we check that every couple months and then we see what rights are available. And then we just talk about things that we'd want to do, or we're just at conventions and people mention them to us. So we we're constantly churning through. It's a, it's a combination of, you know, not doing something we just did, getting the rights and then feeling we can do something, feel like we can do something with it. Sometimes like one game, we had an idea and we're like, yeah, let's do this one. And it spent a couple months. It just wasn't getting better. And so we just like, okay, well, let's walk away from it. You know, like we didn't announce it. It's only when we 
sort of do it and feel like it's working that we we announce it. Very cool. And what's this uh, about the uh, Fireball Island tour? Tell me about that. Well, because this um, because this game is you can't like I can't send you a prototype like here, play the prototype and then I'll come on the show and we'll talk about it because a, a prototype besides being like hand painted um, costs about five thousand dollars to make. So we're in a position going into a Kickstarter that a lot of people haven't seen it and a lot of people haven't played it. So a member of our, our team, J.R. Honeycutt, while the Kickstarter's going, we rented him a car. We're going to put decals on the side. We're giving him the one-of-a-kind prototype, and he's driving it around to 25 to 30 game stores around the eastern part of the U.S. while the Kickstarter's going so people can can play it. And it's also a great chance for us to get a, a ton of playtesting data. Um because oh, wow. yeah, yeah. The, the final, like the plastics are done, but the final cards aren't due until like Memorial Day. So we're going to have a month of hundreds of people playing it where we'll just be like, no, that doesn't work. Or we got to tweak the scoring or doing all this sort of balancing stuff that you would normally do just with cardboard. Uh, but it really wasn't until this week that we could play the actual game with the actual marbles and the actual plastic. Um, the original way we've been playing it had been on a clay model. And it's this weird thing because marbles roll differently on clay. Like there's friction. And, yeah. and so it's like, you know, and so now we're on a, a slicker surface and luckily everything is still working really well. There's just a few tweaks, but um, we're in this weird position of not being able to do the, the play testing that we need until like the 11th hour. Uh, so yeah. yeah, if you on the website, Restoration Games website is a list of all the places that he is going. It's mostly the Northeast then through the the Midwest or like Ohio in Indiana and then down to Texas. So if people want to play it or see it, they can swing by and, and people are getting a kick out of it. It was like a 19th century carnival sort of feel that we're going around. Like, <laughs> come see the one of a kind, you know, is this traveling road show. That's great. So we're, we're trying to, to have fun with the limitation that we just have one prototype. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I'm, I'm excited. The Kickstarter begins April 3rd. So, uh, this week as you're listening to this, um, and I guess you just search for Fireball Island on Kickstarter. Is that how you find it? Yeah, you find it on Fireball Island. I suppose I should talk about the pledge levels. The base game is 60. It'll be, uh, 70 at least when we're in retail. And then if you want to get the game in all three of the expansions, it's 130 and, uh, it'll be over 150. Uh, but if you miss it or you're not sure, like all of this stuff will be in retail in November going into the Christmas season. If you kind of want to see how it comes together. Very cool. Um, I can't let you go without asking you if you're able to talk about anything else you're working on. I mean, I think um, Pandemic Legacy Season 2 was amazing and so different from Season 1. I was so impressed with it. Um is there going to be a season three? Or uh, there is going to be a season three. It'll it'll be a trilogy. Uh, I don't see us doing a season four, but we are, Matt and I are about two thirds done with the design of season three. I'm also finishing up work on Betrayal Legacy based on Betrayal at House on the Hill. Wow, cool. Uh, which is a game that I did some design and development work on the original game back in 2000. So it's this weird thing to kind of revisit some of my earlier work. I... Yeah, like when we get off this call, I'm going to be looking at final cards and everything. I'm really happy with how that came together. It's sort of this story of a haunted house that takes place over 14 generations from 1666 until modern day. And then every game you play a descendant of before, like these families. And there's this unfolding story of why this house is such a nightmare. Uh, oh, that sounds so rad. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. 
Is that is that are you thinking that might be a, a twenty eighteen release? That, that, should, that, that should also be roughly October, November. Like they're gonna try to get it in around around Halloween. So yeah, it's and being a legacy game, you know, it comes out in bits and pieces and your house will be a little different than my house and you'll have different you'll have each you will go through the same chapters, but you might have a different haunt, which is sort of like a, a sub story than I will. You get to heirloom items like this is my pistol and it's like this is my, you know, like you, you and then to your family gets a special power if they find that that was my grandmother's, you know, well bucket. And wow. um, and then cards come in and out of the deck. Like if the original game, there's event cards, you discover a room and you flip over event card and it's haunted and something weird happens. And your event deck will look different from my event deck because it's based on what happened in your every every card will tell a story of how it got in there. Uh, so at the end, you have this fully replayable betrayal game. You'll have only seen about a third of the content, but the the cards and the heirlooms and the events and um, the rooms and the tiles and everything are all based on your version of the story. So I'm I'm really happy how that came together. Oh man, I'm thrilled to to play that. That sounds incredible. Rob, it is always so fun to talk to you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, be on the show. Uh, thanks, and and good luck on the Kickstarter. I think it's going to probably be very successful. I'm certainly excited. For well, it. well, thank you. I here's hoping. It's been a lot of work. Fingers crossed. All right, we're back, and that's going to do it for the show. We uh, what a Jared. It has been so much fun having you. Uh, what a what a great time. I really appreciate you being here. Y'all are delight. I I really appreciate you having me. I. I... This this came together pretty quick, and it was so kind of you all to have me in here. Uh, you asked a long time ago, and I'm terrible at answering my mail, and I, I'm glad that you still allowed me to come by and visit because y'all are delight. The show is a lot of fun, and uh, thank you very much. I hope uh, hope I can come down and, and bug y'all and do something like this again soon. Absolutely. We'd love it. Um, we do have our parting gift coming up, so stay tuned for that. But, uh, Jared, tell people where they can watch your show and follow you on the Internet. Yeah, I recently quit my job to uh, to do this full time. So I, I'm in living that living that freelancer life, boy, and it, it's exciting. Uh, I uh, I stepped away from what I was doing before and decided to give content creation full time a try. You should really and sell I'm out making, to Big VR. They pay so well. You know what? If Big VR is listening, I'm on board. Uh, give me a call, Big VR, because uh, I do believe in VR, and I'd love to be involved with it. No, my uh, my main effort, uh, the thing I'm doing on my own, is called Hot Blip and a Jump. It's a part uh, documentary, part diary series about how everything we love in games is connected. It's a little different than what you've seen before. They're short episodes, usually like 8 to 10 minutes, uh, about each is topically oriented, and they're about how the games we play end up interacting with our real lives. Um, I think they're pretty good, and I think that we're supporting. I'm entirely dependent on Patreon for that at this point. Uh, if you want to check it out, uh, that's hopblipjump.com or hopblipinajump.com, or you can watch the videos by going to YouTube and looking at Hop Blip and a Jump. I also make a little podcast called Pockets Full of Soup. You can find that on iTunes or YouTube. Pockets Full of Soup is a show where I interview people about the people they are thankful for. I get people from all walks of life. A lot of folks from the game industry on there, but also some folks from the world of art, from professional sports, all kinds of places. And uh, they come in and talk about the people who made them who they are, uh, who's, and it's a storytelling show. I really enjoy it. Kind of a positive, goofy Bob Rossi bent to the whole thing, and I like that. Uh, and then I work over at uh, Kind of Funny as a host uh, for the Kind of Funny uh, 
uh, Games Daily and the Gamescast uh, with Greg Miller, Tim Geddes, Nick Scarpino, and the rest of them, which is uh, always a zany romp. Uh, and you can find that at, uh, at Kind of Funny Vids. And uh, I occasionally do some other work. I've got a freelance piece uh, coming out very soon uh, for another outlet. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. But, yeah, the main bit is hop, blip, and a jump. I know there's a million people right now uh, asking for your money to do different things, and, and I, uh, I certainly don't feel entitled to a bit of it. But if you look at what I've made and you think it's worth supporting, it is the kind of product that can only exist through crowdfunding, I believe. And uh, so if you want to drop a, a buck or two my way, I wouldn't mind it at all. That uh, hop, blip, and a jump. Very cool, man. I, I really do like uh, the video series. It's fantastic. It's just starting, but man, it's already uh, such a high quality. So kudos to you for that. Thank you. That's really kind of you. Jeff comes from that's nice. And I, I want you guys to know I really appreciate what you're doing here. I love the uh, I love the upbeat vibe, the celebratory attitude, and the fact that the, that things are approached very thoughtfully here. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's a really really nice uh, nice thing you put together. Thanks for saying that. Right now, you sold out to be a tiny part of it. You sold out to the big pocket of DLC podcast. Checks in the mail, Jared. Okay, you know what? You want to send me a check? I don't. I don't turn checks down at this point. Uh, that's fine. So say we all. I'm going to send you that twenty dollars, but I'm also going to put it like the kind of card you get from your grandma on your birthday. Um, <laughs> I love it. And uh, sign it there. Maybe a nice hallmark. <laughs> Christian, how about you? What do you got going on this week? It's not this week, but I wanted to talk about it, and just in case people are, you know. It's tax time. Uh, I, uh, I always like spending Uh-oh. money doing charitable donations. <laughs> and if you, it's too late now for this past year or for doing 2017 taxes, but it's never too late to stop, start thinking about charitable donations. At the end of this month, I'll be going to visit the St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Um, and there's a, a couple of other people out there that stream and, and um, support St. Jude's and the work they do. And they've reached out. They actually have a, a pretty awesome um, charitable wing that reaches out to streamers and gamers and, and plugs into that community. I know that they were at TwitchCon and um, looking for people to, you know, champion them and their work and what they do. And you can uh, support streamers and those donations then go to St. Jude's. And I think it's you know, we're, we're in a divisive world, but helping kids beat cancer is something that hopefully we can all get behind. And I, I love what St. Jude's do and what they've done and the work they're, 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 they're doing. At the end of the month, I'll be visiting them and I can come back with some more firsthand knowledge of actually touring the hospital and, and seeing some of the great physicians and nurses that, um, are helping kids out. So if you're looking for something to do this year, just keep them or your local children's hospital in your mind and, um, together we can make a difference. Very, very cool. Uh, I look forward to hearing those stories. Um, I am going to be at PAX East this week. If you are hearing this before April, what, 4th, 5th, something like that, uh, whatever that is, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is PAX East in Boston. If you're going, please consider swinging by. I'm doing a couple of different panels. I will be hosting the Heroes of the Storm panel for Blizzard, moderating uh, with some awesome guests. K.O. Milker will be on stage with some other folks from the design team of Heroes of the Storm. If you play Heroes, uh, there's going to be some really cool announcements and some fun discussions, so do not miss it. I would love to see people there that are DLC fans. If you're there, stick around after. I'd love to say hi and meet you. Uh, also, my other podcast, We Have Concerns, will be doing a uh, a panel as well on Friday at 11 a.m. So I would love for you to check that out. If you don't listen to that show, give it a shot. It's only 20 minute episodes. Uh, I guarantee you'll learn something and probably laugh at least once. 
Uh, it's a comedy science show. You can find it at wehaveconcerns.com. I also do the slash film cast. If you want to talk about movies and uh, TV shows or, or more to the point, hear me talk about them. Uh, it's at slash filmcast.com. You can always follow me at Jeff Kanata on Twitter. And if you have anything you want to say about this show or comment or question, send it to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. All right, guys, let's wrap the show up now with our parting gift. Jared, do you have a suggestion to help people get through their week? I do. Uh, I want to point people's attention to the books by uh, a fellow named Jeremy Parrish, who you may have heard of. Uh, Jeremy is uh, the former editor-in-chief of 1up.com, a yeah. website that was really influential in my career. It's where I got my first job in the industry as a freelancer. And uh, from there, he went to U.S. Gamer, and now he, he's kind of, he's out there – He's out there doing the thing. He's he's made it, making his own way with a number of different initiatives that he works on. Uh, and uh, Jeremy has all kinds of irons in the fire. And what separates him from a lot of the pack is the degree of thoughtfulness and depth of research that goes into his work. Uh, he's just maybe the best there is right now uh, at covering game history in particular in thoughtful ways, along with Chris Kohler and Frank Cifaldi and some folks like that. Um, Jeremy occasionally puts together these wonderful video game books, uh, and those are usually collections of marvelous writing, because he's a great writer, and marvelous photography, art, and design, because he's a great visual artist. And he combines those things to create these these marvelously well-laid-out, artistically interesting, meticulously detailed, highly readable uh, perfectly concise books about everything from the history of Game Boy to it's, it's it's all over the place. He's always working on something new. You can follow Jeremy on a Twitter. He goes by Game Spite. That's Game Spite uh, on Twitter. You can find out uh, from there. You can follow his links to whatever books he's working on at the time. But I own several of the things he's worked on. He brings them in and out of print at various points. I have never been disappointed. By what I get there, I, I have this book in my hand right now. I'm holding that's out of print right now. It's going back into print soon. Game Boy World 1989, where he just took every Game Boy game released in America and Japan in '89 and played them all, and wrote essays on each of them, along with uh, photography and screen grabs. And the screen grabs are straight out of a real Game Boy, done at high resolution instead of an emulator. So there's amazing quality to them, and it's just fantastic. I didn't know I could read. This much interesting history about Sudoku. I didn't know it was there, but turns out there is. So that's, awesome. that's my big pitch. Um, uh, the guy just does great work, and I feel like in a, in a kind of a noisy video game landscape, somebody like him that's just been doing quiet, study, thoughtful work for years, uh, uh, maybe doesn't always get the spotlight shined on him like he deserves. But you know how we take news and articles that other people write and then we talk about them and we, 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 we go back to, we always source them, we go to somebody else's source and we discuss where that came from. He's one of those people that creates the sources. He does original research that people aren't doing and digs things up and, and those people are so few and far between in this industry. Um, those books are absolutely worth your time. Go check them out. Awesome. Again, that's uh, Jeremy Parrish and his yeah. video game books. Very cool. Yeah, you can find him on Twitter at GameSpite. That's a good way to uh, go find his stuff. I really love reading his work. Cool. Christian, how about you? You got a parting gift? 
I just want to tell people, if you're watching on my Twitch, which is just Christian Spicer, uh, man, get some, I've, I've refallen in love with my Henleys. It's a type of shirt, uh, basically picture like a polo, but without a collar. Two to five buttons. I prefer a three button variant. Uh, usually a, a thin, light cotton. Uh, I like wearing long sleeves even when it's hot. And then you give me a long sleeve shirt and I'll push the sh- sleeves up and make my own short sleeve. Thank you very much. Um, but I'm a fan of, of, of the Henley. And if you're looking to, you know, refresh or update your wardrobe, I think a Henley is timeless. They've been around for forever and something that works good as layers or alone. And I mentioned my Twitch. Also, also I should mention I had two emergent gameplay moments in Far Cry. I have like my, I have two hours up on my, uh, Twitch. I think it's also archived on my YouTube. And let's just say that uh, it was Moose versus uh, Canoe Paddle. <laughs> uh, and I have that archived on my stream as well. Jeff, what about you? Um, well, my well, let's let's talk about a listener's parting gift first. And uh, this one comes from Matt the Architect from London. Um, he sent this to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. Uh, he writes um, hi guys, my long commute to work means I have two hours of viewing each day. I watch a lot of different programs and movies, but for a heartwarming, quaint, very British drama comedy show written and directed by Mackenzie Crook, who also stars alongside Toby Jones, look no further than The Detectorists. Not Metal Detectors, he says. It's not Metal Detectors. The Detectorists. I have not heard of this one. I said, it's well worth a watch, only 30-minute episodes and full of nonchalant humor that really epitomizes the countryside in the south of England. He's writing from London, so I guess he would know. I love British shows, so I'm going to check this out. The Detectorists uh, is the recommendation from Matt. Again, if you want to send in your parting gifts for reading on the show, send them to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. Uh, my parting gift is another show that I have been enjoying. I think I've mentioned this before because I loved it for season one. Season two of Sneaky Pete has hit Amazon Prime Streaming. It is an Amazon original program. stars Giovanni Ribisi uh, and others, including the fabulous Margot Martindale, character actress extraordinaire. Uh, it, it's uh, exactly the kind of show I love. It, it's uh, people in over their heads. And I love con artists stories. I'm a, just such a sucker for con artists in, in literature and fiction of all kinds. And this is a story about a con artist, about a, a guy who um, assumes the identity of his former cellmate in prison and uh, insinuates himself into their lives and tries to pull that off. It's just so deliciously fun, him using his sort of con artist superpower over and over and over with the family. Sneaky Pete, uh, season two is just as good as the excellent season one was. So I highly recommend it. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of DLC. Uh, Thanks again to Jared Petty and Christian Spicer for hanging out with me. Thanks to all the folks in our chat room um, listening live as we record this on Sunday evenings. You can always check out Christian's uh, Twitch channel, uh, twitch.tv slash Christian Spicer, or my caffeine channel at caffeine.tv slash Jeff Kanata. Uh, when we record Sunday evenings. Uh, thank you to all of you, though, have downloaded the show. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks for the support. Uh, please tell a friend and or take the time to write us a little review on your platform of choice. It does help. And thanks to our musical contributors, Patrick L., Sean Madigan, and Zero Star for those cool bumpers. We will be back next week. Until then, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place.